It's 7.31pm here in the UK on Tuesday, the 20th of October 2020. My name's Matthew Horsepool and welcome back to our live coverage of the 7th General Assembly of the International Council on English Braille. In spite of it being Tuesday, it's day three. This is uh, really confusing <laughs> for me, certainly, because... Um, we started on Sunday, so I always think of Tuesday as day two, but because we started on Sunday, it's it's day three, so that's kind of a bit a bit confusing. And today is the second of our thematic days. Yesterday we talked about music. Tomorrow we're going to talk about Braille literacy and learning. And today we're going to talk about Braille technology. So we have, as yesterday, we have um, the... Braille Technology Committee report uh, that's going to be presented by James Bowden from RNIB. We have a Braille bonus session from Mike Hudson on uh, refreshable Braille displays, the history of a refreshable Braille displays. That's a pre-recorded piece that, um, depending on how things are going, we we may or may not carry live. Um, so that will take place uh, afterwards. That's five minutes long. Then the technology papers, uh, discussion and questions with James Bowden. And then we move on to a break. And then we have the Code Maintenance Committee report uh, and discussion chaired by Kathy Reeson. And uh, there's actually two code maintenance sessions in the programme. This is the first one. It lasts all of the second session. It's a whole 90 minutes dedicated to code maintenance. And it's a reflection on work done to date and we're going to focus particularly on future developments of the UEB rulebook this evening. The papers for this evening are as follows. We have James Bowden on preparing eBraille books. Jennifer Dunham from the NFB has produced uh, Moving Towards Greater Accuracy, and that's about improvements and challenges in electronic print to braille and braille to print production. Jen Golden from Canada has written Automated Braille, The Good, The Bad and The Fabulous. Kathy Reeson, Following Print, What Does This Really Mean in the Electronic Environment? Dave Williams and James Bowden, Lib Louie, Better Braille Translation for Everyone. And Kirsten Roberts, who we haven't met yet. Kirsten is a QTVI from the United Kingdom, QTVI's qualified teacher of the visually impaired. And uh, she has produced a paper entitled Using a Range of Braille Technologies to Access Adult Life. The Master of Ceremonies for this evening is Judy Dixon. If Judy's internet goes down, the reserve will be Mandy White. The moderator for this evening is Ilka Staglin, and if the internet goes down for Ilka, the reserve moderator will be um, Shabani Kaushik. Before we turn to the papers, a very quick look at the Braille Technology Committee report. Uh, James Bowden has been the chair of that committee since 2016, and before that the chair was Christo de Klerk from South Africa. Um, the report will be presented live, as all the other committee reports uh, have been. There's a theme emerging here, isn't there, where the business is presented live and the reports are not, the papers are not presented live. So uh, it'll cover improvements to Duxbury, improvements to Lib Louie, um, <clears throat> efforts in terms of uh, technology companies who are using Lib Louie to perhaps uh, pay for its development and its upkeep. 
uh, and, and screen readers updating NVDA in a prompt manner. Uh, testing low-cost Braille devices and developing new standards for electronic Braille. So those are some of the topics that were covered in that report and we'll hear much more about those in due course. But moving on to the papers now, and as ever on the live stream, I'm delighted to be joined by Holly Scott Gardner from Yorkshire. Holly, welcome back to the stream. Hi, it's great to be back for day three. I am also confused as to what day it is. Well, at least we're both confused, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Better that we're both confused, I guess. Well, in a way, anyway. Well, I don't know yeah. if that's true. <laughs> Oh, we can help help each other out as we go through this. Uh, 7.36 in the UK, that's 18.36 UTC. And these papers, um, there are six of them, and I feel like there's probably not a huge amount of time to really do any uh, fundamental analysis of all of them separately, but um, there were some key themes that were emerging from these papers, and some of them we've already touched on in the context of the Braille Technology Committee report. Um one theme in particular, improvements to uh, Braille translation tools. And it was really good, wasn't it, to see that between 2016 and 2020, there's been improvements to Duxbury and in particular, improvements to LibLui. Uh, LibLui is used all over the place. So I guess this is big news. It's really important. I mean, LibLui is used with the major screen readers. So when you look at the various Braille tables, I mean, what we really need is good quality Braille tables. So actually, when there are improvements to LibLui, that's really important for any of us, really, who are using Braille with screen readers in particular. I mean, it, it just it's so fundamental that we have access to good quality translations. Yeah, absolutely. LibLui is present in NVDA, in uh, VoiceOver, in Android. It, it's on the index line of Braille embossers. It's in, uh, I think it might be, did I say it's in Android? I think it might be in Android. It's even in yeah. JAWS. You know, even commercial companies are using LibLui for their Braille translation. And so it should be really rock solid. But it'd be interesting to hear uh, Jennifer Dunham's paper in particular uh, so, so Dave Williams's paper talks a lot about how various contraction rules have been fixed in LibLui, and they've fixed over two thousand words in LibLui uh, to December twenty nineteen. And Jennifer's paper compares and contrasts that, which I think is really interesting to find out what still needs to be fixed, and lots of symbol assignments, and not just for forward translation, but also for back translation and back translation in the broadest sense. So, I mean, even Braille screen input. Uh, and things like that would depend mm. on some flavour of LibLui to make that happen. And Braille screen input, I don't know about you, but I use Braille screen input every day. So it's back translation. It better be good. I use it all the time. I mean, these days, I unless I'm just writing something like, hello, it's like very, very quick. I'm not going to type that out. I will be using Braille screen input. So it's actually really, really important that it works well. And it's important that when changes are brought in, that screen readers then carry on and adopt that. That was another theme that ran through these papers, that NVDA has a release schedule for making sure that when there's a new release of NVDA, automatically you know checks for a new release of, of LibLui and puts it in. But users that are still on old versions of NVDA, particularly old versions of JAWS, because of course it costs to upgrade 
screen readers like JAWS, and JAWS may be delayed in putting the updated LibLui in. So that could actually be a real problem for some Braille users on older screen readers, presumably. I think it could be, and it's it's very difficult because on the one hand, there's an argument that we should keep our technology up to date, and I agree with that, but there's also inherent privilege in that argument. If you're a blind person who's managed to get hold of a copy of JAWS, maybe because you were in university or had a job and now you don't, as you said, it costs to update it, and certainly blind people in developing countries, if they manage to get hold of JAWS, they may not be able to stick to that update schedule. So I think that needs to be addressed, and I don't think it's necessarily ICEB's responsibility to address that, because that comes down to JAWS and the cost of assistive technologies. I mean, certainly with MVDA, it's good that there is this um, release schedule, as you said, and it will check to ensure that the LibLui version is, is running up to date as well. But it is difficult when you're looking at products that a blind person has had to pay for because you just may not be able to update. Well, and then equally, it's important from an ICEB point of view, if not to make sure that blind people can update their technology, it's important for ICEB to make it clear that changes need to be pushed out as fast as possible um you know if if jaws 2020 comes out with an out-of-date version of live louis then people who've paid for jaws 2020 don't get access to that updated live louis so the sooner we can push out changes to live louis into screen readers the more likely it is that some people will have the latest version and won't possibly need to upgrade for a while Absolutely. I completely agree with that. I mean, all the ICB can do is really stress to the technology companies the need to actually keep Liblui up to date. And I mean, it, it's baffling to me. I understand charging for upgrades of things like JAWS, but actually it's worth remembering that Liblui is free to use. So there also becomes questions as to, well, could there be perhaps updates to Braille support that are free or of a lower cost? And, you know, I don't work in the development of assistive technology. I've trained people on it, but training and development is very difficult. I don't necessarily have the answers to these questions, but I think they're questions that are worth actually asking and putting pressure on the tech companies who I think it's important to acknowledge aren't contributing to the development of Liblui. No, and it does seem that they're not contributing financially or in terms of workload. And the technology companies that Quite. are doing it, so for example, Apple has a fantastic system table. This is something that came up in uh, Jennifer Dunham's paper. Apple have this fantastic system table that does UEB really well, but that system table is not the default Liblui table. So it calls into question, why did Apple not give all of those changes to LibLui and then it could have benefited everybody. I guess commercial sensitivity, but then should they really be using a non-commercial Braille translator if they're going to put commercial sensitivity on top of it? Doesn't that sort of fly in the face of open source software a bit? It does, and it's it's a very difficult question. These are questions we see across the whole tech landscape and industry, even outside of assistive tech, but I think in terms of assistive tech, it becomes an even more thorny issue because it is such a narrow market. So there are questions on, well, how morally and ethically right is it? Even if you can do something commercially, does that mean it's the right thing to do from a moral perspective? No, of course not. And I think we have to answer those kinds of questions and actually, well, I say we as in we as a 
collective body of, of individuals and, and including the assistive tech companies or commercial companies, I I personally don't think it's right to benefit from Libluy and take something that people have put countless hours in, um, not expecting financial compensation, and then turn that into or modify it so that you can financially gain without giving back to the community. To me, that feels very wrong. Unfortunately, there may not be much ICEB can do about that other than continue to put pressure on these companies and actually be maybe a bit more vocal so that blind people know this is happening. Yes, and I think there'll be some resolutions later on in the week on day five. One of the resolutions, I think, is going to possibly address that problem and there are charges to the Braille Technology Committee and we may very well hear about the sorts of pressure that's been attempted as part of the Braille Technology Report. Hopefully somebody will ask a question on it. On a brighter note, though, there is cheaper Braille. Um, that was another thing to come out was that, uh, you know, if you go back sort of 10 years ago, people were sort of talking about electronic Braille, but they weren't really talking about electronic Braille because Braille displays were expensive and so not many people had them and the people that did have them knew how to use them. So electronic Braille kind of wasn't necessary almost or not necessary as it is in the same way now. But we have the Orbit Reader, we have the Braille Me, we have the Canute, uh, the NLS e-reader pilot. We talked about the NLS e-reader pilot already in the country reports, I think. But I mean... Isn't it great that there's choice out there now and that more people have access to electronic Braille? Oh, it's amazing. Honestly, I think it's incredible. And it's actually funny you talk about 10 years ago because 10 years ago I got my first ever Braille display. I was 16, I was going into the sixth form and I one of the conditions for me changing schools was oh, I really wanted refreshable braille because I felt like it would enable me to access textbooks better and it absolutely did. It was a Humanware Braille Note Apex and it feels so old even saying that now but I mean at the time it was wonderful and I think you know, Humanware's released other versions of the Braille Note since then. But now we have so many different kinds of refreshable Braille. The Orbit, the uh, Braille Me, as well as another lower cost one. So you've got those two options which are fairly cheap. I mean, you you might look at something like the Smart Beetle as well, which is, I think, a, is that 14 cells? I can't remember, but it's another one, I think, which is under a 1,000. And there is just so much better availability and I've certainly noticed actually during the pandemic lots more blind people turning to braille which I think is not I don't want to say a good thing about the pandemic obviously it's terrible but it's nice to see so many people suddenly going oh maybe I should read a book <laughs> yeah absolutely and more blind people turning to electronic braille particularly in the UK mm -hmm. with the RNIB giving out free orbit readers uh, during the pandemic because the RNIB library had to close and uh, you, you think on the one hand it's a real shame that the RNIB library had to close but on the other hand well, blind people who were not previously reading electronic Braille because they were maybe scared of it or it was out of their price range or they maybe thought that they would prefer hard copy Braille uh, and then they started reading electronic Braille and realised that actually it wasn't as bad as all that. And that's really exciting. And what that seems to have done, and it comes up in a load of the presentations that we hear today, uh, it, what it seems to have done is sort of put a lot of pressure on Braille translation people to get the translation right. Um, there was 
you know, something came up about quotes and apostrophes in the CMC report. Quotes and apostrophes has been a hot topic of debate for a long time in the Braille landscape. This this has to do with the fact that sometimes an apostrophe, because of how apostrophes are typed in, in Unicode, sometimes an apostrophe is rendered as a closing single quotation mark. And this is really distracting. But maybe there's more pressure to fix that problem now because more people are reading electronic Braille. I really hope so. I think it's so important. I mean, from my own perspective, as a really avid Braille reader and someone who uses Braille all the time, I want good quality Braille. And I understand that if I'm purchasing a cheaper product, maybe I'm going to have to make some sacrifices. I mean, we all know about the refresh rate on the orbit being slower, and that's a sacrifice that I think is fair to make, but I don't think people should have to sacrifice quality of Braille. And this is a problem across all devices, so it's not even a question of, are you buying a cheaper Braille device, you know? And I mean, there's there's, there's so many interesting things raised in the paper. I found one of the papers particularly interesting from Kathy Reeson, which really looked at some of the problems with transcribing or some of the difficulties is that people produce bad documents and that creates a whole lot of work for a transcriber because something might look like a symbol to a sighted person, but when you actually see it in Braille, you see all well, that doesn't look the same at all in braille you know just because two symbols look the same to a print reader in braille they render completely differently and i think hopefully something that will um really develop over the next few years is teaching people actually how to produce good quality documents whether they're producing them for braille readers in mind because it benefits everyone in the end it really does and this is kind of what my position was on quotes and apostrophes i mean it goes beyond quotes and apostrophes you know um people mm. are using x instead of a time sign people are using a superscripted o for a degrees sign um there's all sorts of things going on that really needs to be sorted out but you sort of think it can't just be blind people that have problems with bad documents um surely um even in in terms of symbols you would think, wouldn't you, that um, other disability groups, I, I, I thought that perhaps dyslexic people, for example, might benefit from having certain things like quotes, possibly in a different colour or a Absolutely. different font. Yeah, so for dyslexic people, um, what you'll see a lot of the time is, is various disability groups share assistive technologies. So a blind person who's using a screen reader as well, this is going to be disruptive for them. And... Um, you know, because you'll hear an X instead of a times. And it would be the same for a dyslexic person who's using text-to-speech, which many people do. Also, um, perhaps people with physical and motor disabilities, or like you say, people needing different fonts, maybe people who um, rely on better colour contrast and things like that. Actually, if they're trying to select the right thing, the, if you haven't formatted a document correctly, it can create all kinds of problems. Even... Um, when you look at, there was, there was a whole discussion about instead of using proper headings, what's happened is people have formatted paragraphs to look like a heading. And that's really irritating for blind people using either braille or screen reader navigation. But it's also difficult for people with physical disabilities who navigate using, for example, the keyboard with a mouth stick or something like that. Because again, they rely on accessible keyboard navigation as we do. Mm. And I mean, even for sighted people, even for, you know, sighted yeah. mouse users, the advantages of putting proper headings in a document are 
numerous. Um, that there are, you know, it was really interesting to hear that Kathy wants better word training in schools. Um, George Bell, who we heard from yesterday, he was an observer in the meeting yesterday. Um, George Bell uh, also talks about this a lot. He runs a company called Technovision Systems, and one of the things that he does is goes and delivers training. Uh, in how to use Microsoft Word. And the example that he always cites is that once you've got headings in a document, you can use the automatic table of contents generator. But if you've just formatted it, then the automatic table of contents generator doesn't work. It is so true. And it's interesting you say that because actually that was one of the big things when I was writing my dissertation for university. The Most universities will, provi- will produce a formatting guide, which they send out to students because they want us all to have you know really uniform formatting. But one thing it really stresses is to use the headings built into Microsoft Word because you can then create a table of contents, which is essential, especially now so many um, submissions for academic papers happen online. I mean, there was no hard copy dissertation submission at my university at all. And what they want is for students to produce these good quality documents. But I mean, it shouldn't require you to wait till your final project of university to be doing that, really, should it? No, it really shouldn't. I hadn't realised that universities had gone over to electronic dissertation submission. That's uh, that's quite cool. And maybe that will encourage people to produce better documents. But I'm sort of looking and thinking it might do, but it probably won't, honestly, because people just don't know how to use Word. So it really is a training argument, isn't it? Um, thinking of navigation, how uh, how does that work in a Braille context? So obviously, navigating hard copy Braille is really easy because you've got centered headings and you've got uh, uh, lines and you've got page numbers and you've got all of this information that's at your fingertips if you know how to look for it. Uh, you've read a lot more BRF than I have. Uh, you've read a lot more electronic Braille on various different Braille devices. How do you find navigating those? Because that's something that comes up a little bit today. It absolutely does. And one paper I think of in particular was the paper that James Bowden wrote about the RNIB producing books in UEB BRFs. So one thing he really mentioned, which is very true, is that it's very difficult to navigate a BRF. Or not difficult, but you have to learn different techniques because you can't use things like heading navigation like you could if you were navigating something like an EPUB um, which has the built-in level navigation structures so one of the things that braille readers have to get used to doing is using the find function on their braille display and searching for a particular string of characters so if you know that each chapter starts with a certain set of symbols and then the word chapter written in a certain way, you can then search for that. And actually one thing I'm doing at the moment is I'm learning Hebrew and this comes up a lot. Whilst it's not English, it's very much the same because I'm navigating a BRF file so there's no um, built-in navigation and I might be reading a whole big old Hebrew book in braille as a brf and i think well i need to go to the next exercise to actually complete it i've read most of this chapter i want to you know do do the exercise at the end so i have to learn okay what does the first exercise start with how is it written okay now i can use that knowledge to then search for the next one so it's it's 
really learning things like that and I think there is um, pros and cons to that. The positives are that I think it does teach blind people to be very aware of the structure of their books, of the symbols that are used to become very familiar with various format and style indicators which I actually think are really important. Obviously a negative to that is that it is time consuming. Um, if there was better navigation built into BRF files and there's been an argument that perhaps a new file type needs to be created but unfortunately nobody can quite agree on that then blind people could use a more advanced navigation elements to to search through that file so there's really arguments on both sides yeah and my argument for a better standard of file would be that actually sometimes you don't have time you know if you're reading a brf file yeah. for the first time you've got to analyze that brf file in some level of detail to work out what you're actually searching for or you've got to do lots of trial and error potentially in the find feature to make it actually work mm -hmm. um one example with there's a, a book group that the braillists foundation are running and they're reading peter pan and the chapters are actually just a centered roman numeral so you can't search for the word chapter you can't search for the number one you you can't you know how long would it take for somebody to think of searching for a roman numeral uh, and, and that you, you'd get there eventually, but how much time does that take? And what if you don't have that time? Well, I think also there's an argument that whilst more capable Braille readers and more proficient Braille readers can do that, it's really difficult for children who are learning Braille to use that reasoning. And also blind people with cognitive disabilities who shouldn't be shut out from reading and who can actually really benefit from reading Braille who may just be able to struggle with that kind of reasoning required to that logical reasoning to work out what to do, who may need a lot of support. Whereas actually, if there was better navigation built into the files, that person would be able to read their book independently. And I do think we need to think of blind people with multiple disabilities as well in this argument. Just one more question, because it's now three minutes to eight. Um, so with mm -hmm. this, this will be the last one. But... Um, we're talking about automated Braille and it's all very positive and it's all very wonderful. If automated Braille and electronic Braille is really that good, why do we still need transcribers? <laughs> well, this is funny because you're a transcriber and I'm not and you're asking me, but I understand why you're asking. I mean, for so many different reasons, certainly with transcribing mathematics, we're not there at all yet. Um, with understanding complex diagrams, with looking at formatting and saying, okay, actually, this is formatted in a way that a sighted person can read really well and that maybe a screen reader user can navigate, but we need to alter this formatting so that it can work for a blind person. I mean, an example we've talked about a lot is really huge tables. They cannot be adapted for braille readers by a piece of software until the transcriber looks at it and goes, actually, can this fit on a piece of paper? No, if it can't, at what point do we split this table? And you know this because you produced some tables for me for my dissertation. I did. I read some maths. <laughs> I did, and I've I've been there, but it's interesting to hear the end user point of view because I just want to save my job. So of course I'm mm. going to say that that transcribers are important. <laughs> um, you know, I, I I often wonder what the tolerance is amongst blind people. You know, how much how many errors can they tolerate before they think actually, you know what, I, mm. I'm just going to pass it over to a transcriber and get the transcriber to sort it out. 
it's... it depends on what I'm reading for me anyway just just to quickly answer um I mean if I was reading maybe an article just for fun I wouldn't really care but certainly a textbook I mean that could be the difference between uh, getting my master's degree and not it's coming up to eight o'clock here in the UK. You're listening to live coverage of the 7th General Assembly of the International Council on English Braille with Matthew Horsepool and Holly Scott Gardner. And uh, this is the point where it all gets a little bit nerve wracking because I've got to try and work out uh, when the meeting is about to get started. So far, they haven't let the observers in. There's 27 in the uh, waiting room at the moment. So, oh, no, they're starting to let observers in now. So I'm going to um, fade up Zoom and um any moment now yep. we're going to hear from <laughs> judy dixon now, judy. who is going to start the proceedings and it is 1900 utc good afternoon everyone good afternoon from the united states good morning and good evening for everyone around the world welcome to day three of the seventh general assembly of the international council on english braille hosted by ucaf I am Judy Dixon, your MC for the day, and Ilka Steglin from Ireland is our monitor. A few reminders before we get started. All delegates are co-hosts, so you can mute and unmute yourself as you wish. But when you are not speaking, please mute yourself. This will keep the background noise to a minimum. All observers will be muted at times when observers are invited to ask questions, you will be invited to raise your hand to be recognized. And as a quick reminder, if you're on a Windows machine, muting and unmuting yourself is Alt-A and raising your hand and lowering your hand is Alt-Y. If you're on a Mac, it's Option-A and Option-Y. And if you're on an iDevice and using the Zoom app, mute is in the lower left corner. And to raise your hand, you have to do the more button, which is in the lower right corner, and then raise hand. And if you're on an actual telephone, mute is star six, six for M, and raise hand is star nine, nine for Y. So the chat function has been disabled. We will have five minute and one minute warnings when necessary with a small sound from the Perkins Brailler. And today our theme is Braille technology. And this is one of my very favorite topics. I think technology is just super fun. And we have six terrific papers all about the joys and sorrows of the technology that most of us use to access Braille. It's only going to get better. In, section, in session six, the first half of today's program, we will focus on the Braille technology, first starting with the Braille Technology Committee, and James Bowden will lead with a discussion of his report. He's the chair of the Braille Technology Committee. And the Braille bonus today will be on the history of Braille displays from Michael Hudson at the Museum of the American Printing House for the Blind. Then we will have about an hour to discuss the six papers that were submitted on technology topics. 
After a short break on session seven, we will have a discussion of code, the Code Maintenance Committee report led by Kathy Reeson, the chair of that committee. So without further ado, I will introduce, oh, sorry, we have one other topic. Um, yesterday, we had um, a, a rather lively discussion about the bylaws and constitution. And I just wanted to let everyone know that the incoming executive committee will be taking up this topic. We will let everyone know what the process will be and we'll do that very soon. So is everyone okay with that plan? Hearing nothing, I will assume that that is agreement and that is what we'll do. So now, without further ado, I am going to hand it over to James Bowden. Thank you, Judy. So a warm welcome to everyone at this third day of the ISEB General Assembly. And it's my pleasure to chair this session on Braille technology. So we'll start with the Braille technology report um, from the ICEB committee. And like all of the ICEB committees, we have, well, most of the ICEB committees, we have representatives from all member countries. I won't give their names, but they know who they are. And I'm extremely grateful for all your work during the last four years. So the main focus of the Braille Technology Committee have been kind of divided into three main areas. One is to keep up to date with Braille technology. And we've been extremely interested in the new range of um, lower cost or more affordable Braille displays, such as the Orbit Reader, the Braille Me, and the Canute display. And I'm sure we'll hear more about them later on. The second part is table development, Braille table development. And we have papers about LibLui coming up, so I won't say too much about that now. And the third area is file formats. So we're probably familiar with the BRF file format. And the question was asked, should there be an enhanced version, uh, which will allow us to do other things? So one of the things we are very pleased about in the technology group is the improvements to software packages. Um, and I'm going to mention here Duxbury. I don't work for Duxbury, so I can call out. Um, and over the four years, we have seen new features, new functions, corrections, and enhancements in all kinds of areas from back translation of particularly strange mathematical signs through to uh, the ability to define real mouthful here, transcriber defined typeform indicators. If you don't know what they are, go check out section nine of the rules of unified English Braille. But basically it is if you need to show that there's a wiggly underline under this word or this word is crossed out in green, then you can define a particular type form indicator. And there's a way to do that now in Duxbury, which is great news. What I would say to everyone is please do contact software vendors. If they don't hear from anybody, they won't know 
what doesn't work very well and they'll carry on in their own sweet way now Duxbury I'm very pleased to say have been really responsive when problems are pointed out and you know often I've had a fix within a day it's as good as that sometimes so by far the greater part of the effort of the technology group has been the improvements to Lib Louie and I want to say thank you to all those particularly who peer reviewed some of the work last year it was quite a lot of work um, and I'm really pleased to report that we managed to get it all sorted in which is brilliant regarding Lib Louie um, we did try and approach some of the major technology companies the likes of Microsoft and Apple and, and so on who use Lib Louie at no cost to themselves but who have not contributed anything towards maintenance, etc. Sadly, we have not borne fruit with that. Sadly. In the 2016 uh, General Assembly, one of the resolutions was to do with making progress and improvements on the accuracy of Braille translation, and then to encourage different manufacturers to update basically. Now towards the first part we have definitely made progress, we'll hear more about that later. The second part encouraging manufacturers, we have not actively pursued that at this stage uh, because we want to get further down the line, particularly with Lib Louie. Um, but we note that the NVDA screen reader does have an active program of updating to Lib Louie, the latest version, which is great news. Finally, this idea of a new file format for Braille files. Um, the idea is really that a BRF file is equivalent to a plain text file. You know, like you might have a TXT file, which you open in Windows Notepad. And you can do a find for specific text, but there's no such thing as a header or a heading or a, a particular mark for a paragraph or a table. It's just spaces and carriage returns. So the idea was, should there be an enhanced format so that you can do similar things, how many screen readers have uh, quick navigation keys to the next heading or next paragraph, next table, you can jump to a link um, we're used to that in PDF files, in Word documents, on the websites and so on. Should there be a similar file format for Braille? So far, again, no concrete um, decisions have been made. We did approach an organisation which could well have been a driving force behind that, but unfortunately there was no, not much appetite. However, stop press. I only had this a couple of weeks ago. I was approached by Duxbury and they are kind of interested in pursuing this, which is great news. Very early stages. I can't say more than that at the moment, but it's good that there is now some interest. And I've also learned that the National Library Service in the States has been investigating this as well. So that is all I want to say by way of introduction and by review of the paper, uh, open it for questions. Any questions from anyone?
delegates. Jen Golden from Canada. Go ahead. Um, thanks, James. This is more of a comment, I guess, that I'm really excited to hear this about Duxbury because uh, when transcribing particularly long files, it would be excellent to be able to navigate by heading. And I know there's sort of ways you could do that now if you look for styles, but I think this would be uh, this would be a very helpful thing, not only to for reading, but also for transcription. Jordi Howe from Australia. Go ahead. I'm really interested to hear that, um, uh, read in your report about um, Apple and the implementation of Braille and some of the difficulties there. So I'm interested to follow the progress in, in their further development. Uh, the fact that it was a different implementation, uh, the Braille tables that you can select either by the Braille display or the, or the Braille tables themselves. Perhaps you can clarify that because I'm not doing ah, yes. a good job of it at this hour. So this is, I was going to mention this further down the track. Um, this is both the blessing and the curse of open source software. The blessing is you get a package for free with no effort to yourself. But the, the curse is there's nothing to stop you making your own version or derivative works from it. And then it's not the same as the original. And then if you update the original, there's no, no necessity that the derivative gets updated in the same way. And some of the products which use LibLui do have their own version. Judy Dixon, United States. Go ahead. I am also very interested in the way that Apple has chosen to implement Braille. And it seems like every update of iOS, we go through issues with Braille that doesn't work or has changed or has a problem. And I'm hoping we can um, strengthen our communication with Apple specifically about Braille and be involved in some specific testing of Braille-related items in iOS and iPadOS so that we don't keep going through this every year. That's a really good point there, Judy. And I think one of the things which would be really helpful um, to, if you like, to execute the second half of that resolution to do with updating Braille technology companies is if anybody has direct communication or a contact within these firms that you know use LibLui or has a Braille product, it will be really useful to A, continue that and foster that relationship, and then B, connect with us at ISEB so we can take it forward, you know, when we're, when we're ready to, to say, hey, please update to this great new version of whatever. Thank you. Anyone else? James Ilka here. We have two raised hands from observers. Yes, go ahead. Who so have we? We have Laurent first. So I'm going to unmute him. Hi there. Um, I was particularly interested in the enhanced BRF idea. And I was just wondering about the feasibility uh, of using a subset of Markdown, which would be both human readable and machine readable. Um, I was just wondering whether that might be potentially um, kind of a, a way forward. Um, 
also with markdown then potentially being a transferable skill to, to other domains so the interesting thing with markdown if i remember it's a text-based uh protocol is that right yes i believe it is and, and ueb has um symbols that could be probably used quite easily to hmm. so the the, the interesting that. thing is you have to somehow distinguish what is a valid braille character from something on, in the markup and that is not necessarily easy because braille characters can actually be any of the markdown characters in any particular permutation they always run the risk of a valid braille string also being a markdown command um, those who remember back in the day we used to have dollar commands um, if you had dollar ge for example if that was a command that is actually the word edge dollar uh, it would be the word edit and so on so there's always that danger so there are all sorts of options which we could use um, there was i think a banner proposed format um, back from the 1980s would you believe um, there was a Danish format I came across. There's been ideas about using a subset of EPUB or DAISY or HTML, all that kind of stuff. So I think all options are on the table. Thank you, Laurent, for suggesting Markdown as well. Thank you. Okay, then we have um, a phone number from the UK. I'm just going to ask for unmuting. Yeah, go ahead. Warmest greetings now come to you all from Mike Howell, calling you from Braille House in Oldham, not very far from Manchester, but decidedly in UK. James, are you hearing me, old boy? Yes, certainly, sir. I am thrilled to be able to congratulate you publicly on the work that you've done with Lib Louie and less than an hour ago, I was heaving with laughter at the recommendation that you made to me in the excellent paper that you did with Dave. I I'm concerned here with the handout section. And it, it really means that Lib has gone from being appalling to extremely good. So well done. And I look forward to talking to you later. Thank you, Mike. Anybody else have any questions or comments? Yeah, we have um, another um, raised hand here from Hattie Douglas. Go ahead, Hattie. Hattie, we can't hear you. You might have to unmute yourself there as well. No, I'm sorry, Hattie, we, we can't hear you. I'm sorry. How about now? Oh, that's better. Yes. Oh, excellent. Yes, Hattie Douglas from Australia. Sorry about that. Um, on the... Sorry. With the problem of markdown commands being interpreted as Braille, 
Um, I was wondering if the Unicode Braille patterns could be used for the BRF portion and normal text could be used for the markdown portion. Certainly another great option there. And that is the kind of option that was used by the so-called portable embosser format or PEF file. Uh, the current version of the PEF, as I understand it, is basically a BRF file, but uses the Unicode patterns instead of the um, ASCII Braille characters. Now that has the advantage of giving the Braille patterns unique codes. Um, is everybody aware of the problem of internationalization of Braille files? Now, we in the English-speaking world all use the USA ASCII Braille code to represent uh, Braille and control embosses, but this is not the same in other countries, particularly, for example, Germany, France, Italy, Spain. They all have a different embosser code. And if you try and send one to the other, you end up with the alphabet being correct, but all the contraction signs being complete garbage. So using the Unicode Braille range is a great option to kind of overcome that problem. The disadvantage is your Braille files double in size. Um, interesting. Yeah, go ahead. I'm just wondering if, if the main problem is just size. Um, that's one problem. The other problem is it's very difficult to type Unicode Braille. Um, it's doable, but you can't quite so easily do it from your average word processor. Now, I know there is an add-on for NVDA, which does help greatly. And if you use a Braille translation program, uh, which can output to that format, that's also a good option. Um, so there are, you know, advantages and disadvantages with all these things, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot more discussion about this in the months and years to come. The one thing I, I, I would urge um, towards uh, an enhanced Braille file is that the format is simple enough to be used by the most basic of Braille displays yet powerful enough to capture everything we need to do. Any other questions or comments? James, Donald Fitzpatrick from Dublin. Go ahead, Donald. One thought about Markdown that just strikes me, and, and this is literally thinking off the top of my head, is that I suspect that some of the symbols that are actually used in Markdown uh, might clash with some of the Braille that we use. For example, a heading one is indicated by a single hash mark followed by the string of text representing a heading. And I just wonder whether if used incorrectly or, you know, hashtag followed by A to J could be confused in some cases with um obviously numerals in braille so i just wonder whether the, we might introduce some issues if, if if markdown is the one of choice so donald you have actually mentioned another really good point uh which is whether the if you like control sequences commands formatting whatever you want to call it should be displayed on the braille display or not so if you display the markdown coding as well as 
you have extra symbols literally in your braille display so those who are familiar for example with the braille note devices um, you're probably familiar with ed sign p for a new paragraph now the question is if you start putting i don't know hash signs and h1s and paragraphs and all these other marks into the actual flow of the text and they're shown what point does that become annoying and what point does it become useful or do we actually just want the braille display to show none of the markup but all of the formatting it's an interesting question and i don't know the answer yet dave williams from the uk go ahead dave yeah would using ueb for those symbols not mitigate some of that risk so i understand what what donal's saying about you know um the way we used to write hash sign but uh, you know my understanding of the way we write hash sign now is it starts four five six one four five six that is correct for the ueb sign uh, but you need some way of representing the actual commands for the structure of the document and to try and get them so they don't clash with any possible braille is the challenge one minute james ah perkins bells again excellent any final comments from anyone? Three, two, one. Well, thank you, everyone. I think that's a, a fascinating discussion, and I'm sure we will come back to this particular topic of uh, an enhanced Braille file um, again and again, and hopefully a standard will come right the important thing i think i said somewhere is that we have to get three things all going together the hardware manufacturers supporting it on their displays the software manufacturers being able to generate it from their translation programs and the production houses actually using it thank you thank you very much james We'll now have our Braille bonus session. This one's on the history of Braille displays. And it's brought to us by Michael Hudson, who is the leader, curator, I'm not sure of his title. Anyway, he's the head of the museum at the American Printing House for the Blind in Louisville, Kentucky, United States. You're listening to live coverage of the 7th General Assembly of the International Council on English Braille with Matthew Horspool and Holly Scott Gardner. The time, 8.25, and uh, we're not going to be showing these Braille bonuses or the postcards on the stream due to uh, degradation of quality in screen sharing. But don't worry, they will be made available via the podcast, which is at live.braillecast.com, and you can also find the papers uh, there. We've got five minutes while this is going on to really uh, talk about this Braille technology paper, which I think was really interesting and particularly interesting about the discussion about um, Duxbury's working on navigability. This is amazing. And then the, the talk about Markdown following on from that and the various types of different um, embosser formats and, and, and what do you call it? Um, thoughts from you, Holly, on, on any of that, really? Well, firstly, I think it was great to see such a high level of discussion and just you know, people wanting to talk about this, that to me was a huge positive. 
I know I'm a tech enthusiast myself so I was really pleased to see so many people being engaged. I did find the question about Markdown quite surprising in some ways. Um, in my opinion it serves a completely different function and it just isn't appropriate in this context. When, when in James's paper he talked about things like EPUBs having built-in navigation, now that was a fair comparison because we're talking about a file format with advanced navigation. Markdown, it just doesn't make sense really to bring that into this conversation as if it's comparable. Sure, but it's interesting to uh, have the conversation nonetheless, right? Because somebody oh, yeah. was going to bring it up sooner or later, and I suppose it's quite useful to be able to rule it out before the conversation really has the opportunity to gain much traction, right? Yeah, and I do think Markdown is handy. I mean, one thing I use Markdown for is if I'm taking a set of notes which is going to get distributed to sighted people as well, Markdown is great because I can build in formatting into that that I can still read very easily in Braille, unlike trying to read HTML code, and then I can run it through... Um, a piece of software and it will output it into even a Word document or something which I can then send off nicely or an HTML file to sighted people and it's great. You know, so, so there are functions for Markdown in Braille but perhaps not in this situation. Yeah. And moving from Mark down to Mark up, uh, as somebody who's a prolific reader of mm. electronic Braille, um, <clears throat> what was your thoughts on it when they were talking about showing Mark up on the Braille display? I know that the first thing that I do when I get a new Braille device is turn all those dollar sign P's off because I just find them horrifically distracting. I think there are situations in which you want to see this stuff and there are situations when you don't. Maybe if you're doing some advanced proofreading of your own work, you might want to see all of it to make sure everything's where it should be. But yeah, I'm absolutely in agreement for the most part. I, I don't need all that. It just takes up space. I know what's going on. I can use, you know, logic to figure out what's happening. I, I wouldn't want that personally. Sure. And very, very quickly before we go back to the stream, uh, NVDA and its yeah. Braille add-on was mentioned. That's good. And Unicode Braille. So so um, it's twice the size. I didn't realise. I think I should have done, but I didn't. Um, I didn't realise either, I'm going to be honest. So I'm no. with you. But it was good to see it mentioned because I feel like these Unicode Braille patterns are sort of not talked about very much. Right. I, we don't hear that much about them or we do sometimes, but there isn't real discussion about where they're useful, where they're not. You're listening to coverage of the 7th General Assembly of the International Council on English Braille with Matthew Horspool and Holly Scott Gardner. The time just coming up to half past eight. We're about to go back to Zoom to hear the Braille technology papers. Uh, the Braille bonus that's going on on Zoom at the moment is with Mike Hudson from the American Printing House for the Blind, and that will be made available, as I say, on the podcast at live.braillecast.com in ultra high quality for people who want to listen to that um, after the fact um, so James Bowden back uh, talking about all of the six papers that we uh, talked about in the commentary before we um, got started um, I think we've sort of run out of things to say so I will just fade up the end of this braille bonus for people to listen just to get a, a real uh, a small snapshot of what's going on and we'll be back with you uh, in the break to talk about the technology papers becomes available for other developers, it holds great promise to help to create a new line of much less expensive displays. 
And in the meantime, the low cost of the orbit puts competitive pressure on other manufacturers to reduce the price of their own devices and to explore other technologies, one way where the market system encourages innovation. Thank you, Ilka, for sharing. And thank you, Mike Hudson, for that presentation. We're now going to turn the program back to James Bowden, who's going to chair our session discussing the papers related to technology. James? Thank you, Judy. It's wonderful. And it's also, I noticed that uh, Venkatesh Chari, the CEO of Orbit Research, is actually watching this meeting. So great work there, Venkatesh. So we have six papers in this session, um, which means we are quite tight for time, but we'll see how we go. Um, I'm going to take them in the order which they are on the program. Um, so speakers, be ready if you if you would please. I'm going to ask each one to give about three minutes presentation, and then we can take questions for each one. So let's see if I can compress mine into about three minutes. I've probably taken already five already. So my paper is called Producing Electronic Braille or eBraille Books. And basic idea was to turn a multi-volume Braille book, which you normally put on paper, into a form which is more friendly to use with a Braille display. So the basic kind of steps are to get rid of excess blank lines, page headers, braille page numbers, etc. Then more complex processes like collecting footnotes together at the end of a volume and finally join the whole lot together into a single unit. And there are all sorts of tweaks that one can do to make it better and I'm always open for ideas and I'm going to give you one little thing to, to ponder in a moment, which is the reference books. So for reference books, the most important thing you want to do is be able to find a unique place in the book for the particular reference. Take the word, take a dictionary, for example, and you want the word feast. You don't want the definition of banquet. You want to know what a feast is. So we did some interesting tweaks to the dictionary file which meant you can search for and be guaranteed to find the head word feast. Same is true for, for example, a Bible where the name John may come up quite happily in the text, but you actually want to find the book of John. So how do you distinguish the two? We put the word John and the chapter number right next to it. So you can always search for a reference to a chapter uniquely. One that I'm very interested in, anybody who's got ideas, write me on a postcard afterwards. No, email's better than postcards these days, um, is a multi-language dictionary. So if you have English, French, French, English, we could quite happily do the same thing with the English to French side with the double dot five, six and writing grade one. But the French to English is harder because you may have a gender or a reflexive verb before the actual main head word. And putting five, six in either place doesn't really help. Anyway, I'll leave that one for you guys to consider. 
We've already talked about a new file format, but at the moment, the most most proficient way of, of, of searching for things is with a find command on your um, Braille display. So that works particularly well for chapters if you know that it's called chapter and it's spelt out T-H-R-E-E. -E. You can search for chapter three. You can search for a print page number with a print page indicator sign, which in the UK is dot five two five, immediately followed by the number. And in the US, it's a great big long line of dots three six, and then immediately followed by the number. So those things are fine. But as we said earlier, a file format which gives us navigate to the next heading command would be wonderful. So there's lots more in the paper. That's all I want to say for now. Are there any questions? Um, James, we have um, Mike Howell's hand up. So if you want to take that question there. Yeah, any other person, any other people? In that case, Mike, go ahead. Hello and greetings. Yes, Mike, hearing you loud and clear. I, I believe you can hear, oh, that's, that's marvellous. Well, here we are again. And once again, James, I have to congratulate you on wonderful, wonderful work which you've done with digitizing Braille. Now, I use the Orbit Reader 20. I am the largest, the heaviest user in the UK of this little machine. I found it wonderful. I find the referencing extremely interest, uh, extremely acceptable. I can find things very easily. Thank you very much. So this is the question. Presumably, you will press ahead with digitizing and devolumizing many more books. But I want to ask you this. Can I help you? Can others help you when we reach a state where we've digitized everything other than the many books that you have that are in hard copy, question mark. A very interesting question, Mike. Thank you. What I can do there is take it back to the management at RMIB and thank you for your kind offer. At this stage, I don't have an answer. Thank you. Okay. James, we also have a question from Darren Pascal. Yeah, go ahead, Darren. Thank you, James. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, and this is really off the top of the head here, on the topic of uh, potentially searching through um, reference material like bilingual dictionaries, if some sort of regular expression type solution might uh, be the basis of moving forward with that. But um, again, I haven't thought this through, but just a thought. It's a great idea. Um, the question, there's two questions. Number one is, do the Braille displays provide advanced find functions? Um, as far as I know, most of them don't. And the second question, which is possibly more important, is does your average Braille reader know what a regular expression is? Hmm. Um, it's a great question. 
I know, for example, that Microsoft Word doesn't have regular expressions, but you can do fancy things with it if you know a particular interesting codes. So, for example, you can search for a, a new paragraph uh, with the up arrow, uppercase six on the PC keyboard, followed by the letter P, uh, and you can search for a tab character with up arrow and then T for tab and so on. So, yeah, all sorts of great ideas. Thank you. I, I should have said that um, what Mike was referring to was over the lockdown period when the RNIB Braille library was closed because we couldn't get into the building, um, we sent out lots of books on an SD card uh, with orbit readers. And as we mentioned on day one, the Scottish Braille Press uh, did similar with the grant. They sent out paper books, I believe. So yeah, great work. Thank you. Any further questions? Dave Williams in the UK with the comment. Dave, go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to mention the recent news about the progress of the uh, Marrakesh Treaty in the UK, which will hopefully enable us to share uh, some of these uh, Braille books internationally. Great point. Stop press. That's the second stop press I'm supposed to mention. Yesterday, I received notification that the UK has ratified the Marrakesh Treaty even after the other dirty word, Brexit. Um, so that's great news, and we look forward to being able to share books in the future. Very early days at the moment, so I can't promise anything, but it's great news that the treaty has been ratified. Wonderful. James, we have um, one more hand up. Yes, let me, let's make this the last one before we move on to the next paper. Go ahead. So, Debbie, would you like to ask your question? Hi, James. Debbie Gillespie. Um, I'm Hi, interested. Debbie. <laughs> Good to talk to you and everyone else, too. Um, my question is regarding what you did for the, for the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19. When you sent, you sent out uh, the uh, SD cards with BRF files, did, did you know who had an orbit reader through RNIB and do you have any sense of how many people do have them or readers of that effect? We, we did send them out to, it was all sorts of different schemes running. I think there was those who had an orbit reader and who were members of the Braille library was the, was the primary thing, but I think that was widened. Um, Dave, do you know more about the schemes that we ran? Yeah, so the uh, service initially was for those library members who were then suddenly unable to receive hard copy books. They were offered the option of receiving uh, SD cards, so electronic books for use on their uh, Braille display. In the first case, the Orbit Reader, but of course any uh, Braille display that supports uh, BRF. So uh, that was the uh, that was the initial offer, and then once the hard copy library service resumed, uh, then we we continued the the SD card service for library members. And as for, as for, as James, for quantity, um, I can tell you, I personally copied hundreds and hundreds of cards. Uh, James, just this is Mandy White, UK, just to say that we did um, get a grant and, and we were giving people free orbit readers and um, also giving them the Braille cards to go with them. There, there was about, it was uh, people who were registered as um, Braille library users, so we had money to give them 
the uh, free orbit and the SD card to go with it. There was about 120 that we sent out. That's brilliant. Thank you, Mandy. I would like to move on to the next paper, if we may, please. So this is Jennifer, I believe, with an update on progress in accuracy of print to braille and braille to print transcription in UEB. Jennifer. Thank you, James, and hello, everyone. I will try my best to make this quick, which is not easy for me on this topic, but I will do my best. At the sixth General Assembly, I presented a paper on Braille translation that included types and examples of inaccuracy in electronic Braille and ideas for how to bring improvements. And this, this current paper, as James said, is intended to kind of give an update on the positive development since 2016 and some of the challenges that remain and specifically focusing on UEB implementation in Braille that's generated by computer screens or an on-demand on libraries. So kind of starting with the positive developments, James has talked in his report and, and will talk some more later, I think, about the um, specific developments in LibLui, and that is a, a great thing. It's good to have those improvements made. There are still some issues to be addressed, uh, but those, those improvements are very helpful. Um, the release of the new section 7.6 of the rules of UEB. I'm, I'm calling that out in this technology area because not only did it make helpful changes in the rules about apostrophes and quotations, but it gives specific guidance directly to software developers to assist with the application of those rules. And I think that's really key. Um, James has also talked some about the type form indicator improvements that Duxbury has made. I also want to call out the fact that in 2017, NVDA screen reader began to show UEB type form indicators while you're reading in real time. I have not seen that before or in any other screen reader. That's a very um, useful development. Braille Blaster, the Braille software, the standalone translation package, that the American Printing House for the Blind has released has really been a game changer. It's free of charge. It supports a number of different files and it's available for, game, um, for producers as well as everyday Braille users who have embossers. Um, it has been since 2016 that the trend, that the Braille display of emojis has become available in Apple devices. That's been a good thing. I'll talk a little bit later about um, some of the drawback there, but that's, you know, it becomes more important to have those emojis. Back translation, there have been improvements there. LibLui has has made improvements in, 2017 was a big year, I keep mentioning that year, but they've they've done a good job. Um, at this point in, in my particular evaluation, the Apple system table is the best at the back translation with the screen reader, but everybody is working on improvements. In terms of issues to be addressed, this, um, this paper really deals with more global errors and errors that result in ambiguity rather than errors of preference. Um, uh, the, the, the dash is one that has remained unresolved for many years, and so I've had more time to become more unhinged over this silly little issue, but it's really ubiquitous. And so um, I talk in technical detail about that at the, in the paper. The solution is found on the on page 314 of the UEB rulebook where the symbols list assigns the M dash to Unicode 2014. 
Um, so it's incorrectly assigned currently in Liblui, and that makes there be lots of dash errors in, in books. So that, that needs to be addressed and be some hopefully some talk, conversation about that. Um, but moving on, talking about the, there are other things like the check mark that was more recently implemented in UEB that, that is still waiting to be deployed. There are some issues about the initiation of numeric mode, some uh, grade one indicators that are needed in a specific, using rule 10.9.5. Um, mathematics in general, there's been progress there in terms of real-time braille translation, but again, the support is pretty incomplete and there's a long way to go for mathematics, both in, in display and in back translation. Computer braille code. There are some screen readers that still are requiring and displaying CBC um, when we have moved beyond the need for that with UEB. There's been improvement in the Brailleback translation software for Android. Um, still still some, some ways to go there. Um, and James was talking about the ability to switch tables in Apple now. And uh, some of that, that's a very good thing. But again, um, there need to be some, some updates to Liblui and that emoji um, issue that I was talking about earlier. In the Liblui table that Apple has brought forward, they're using dots two five as the enclosure symbols, um, which I understand it's understandable if people want to have a shorter enclosure symbol than a transcriber node indicator, but those are ambiguous. For example, I don't know if there's such a thing, but if you have a, a cave emoji, it could read as concave colon. You don't want that. Um, so a variety, various other things are discussed in this paper. Hope you'll take a read if you have not already. But um, in conclusion, these, these are just the kinds of issues. There are multiple factors that make the promise of unified English Braille a reality for us. And as we make progress along the way, we just need to, to acknowledge that and to continue to push and to report to the manufacturers and to, to uh, praise where, where that is warranted. So thank, thank you to everybody who has, has made this uh, be possible. Thanks. Jennifer, that was great. Thank you. Does anyone have any questions for Jennifer? Silence. I put them all to sleep. I'm going to ask a question then. This is a question for Kathy. Do you think that the ICEB Code Maintenance Committee should adjudge on emoticons? Thanks, James. Um, we possibly. Uh, I, I, I will put that on the agenda for discussion. I think it's probably um, a good one. It is, emoticons are very prevalent in, uh, in you know, sort of in documents these days, whether it's, you know, sort of, we see them in, in children's novels, we see them, you know, sort of websites, all sorts of things. So it possibly does need to be addressed more fully than it currently is, yes. I, I, I will put it on to the CMC um, potential to-do list. Yeah, thank and you. Then to, and then to, to discuss, yes. Thank you. 
do we have any raised hands, Ilka? Well, yes, Jane. Sorry, Cathy. Right, well, whilst I was on there, I was going to make a comment that, in fact, um, a lot of these issues that Jennifer's talking about are probably not UEB-specific, but, but are more that language has changed so much in the last years. Whether we were using um, previous codes to UEB or or UEB, we would still be having the problem with emoticons. We would still be having the problem with many of these other, other things. And it is a fact that that language has changed. One of the strengths is that with UEB, we do have uh, the ability to be, to be quite strong in, in, how, in how these things should be expressed and hopefully that the rules will be written into translation software to uh, to accommodate to changes to our language. I think you're absolutely right. Thank you, Cathy. Any other questions? We, we, we need to press on, but anybody got a last comment? James, both Mike and Debbie have raised hands, but I know you're pushed for time. Maybe we can keep it very brief. Yeah, can we, talk to, can we yeah. go to Debbie, please? Okay. Um, hi. Um, Jennifer, uh, James, et cetera, is ICEB involved with the process of LibLui updates? And, yes. Uh, yes. Okay. Stop press. Um, I started work on LibLui symbol assignments today. And I, would, I, I am very seriously hoping that we can certainly fix the check mark. That is trivial. The dash is slightly harder because there are... <clears throat> inconsistencies in the rule book that has been the problem why dash i was muted by the host apologies um there are inconsistencies in the rule book and that's where the confusion has come about the assignment of ueb of unicode 2014 but i'm hoping to address that yes iceb is very definitely involved in the update of liblui Okay. Do you want to go briefly to Mike, James? Mike, if, if you can keep it very short, that would be brilliant. I believe you can now hear me. Jennifer, a wonderful paper. I've read it twice. I only received the papers last week. When I went through it this afternoon, I, forgive me, made it easier to read on the Braille display. What I really wanted to say to you, it doesn't matter what code you use, but the whole thing comes down to the teaching. I'm feeling slightly emotional. The only reason why I'm a decent Braillist, both a reader and a writer, is because I received proper, proper tuition in a specialist school. Now, what I do want to tell you very briefly, I am aware of this, Margaret and I, my fiancé, used to know a little boy when he was learning Braille, and every time we used to go to see him, he was learning Braille at a, a normal, an ordinary integrated school. He would seize with vigor the piece of plastic Braille that I gave him and hold it with his left hand and read it with his right hand. That ain't no good. And he wondered why he was never as good as Mike. Thank you very much, Mike. I'm sure we will come to more education and learning issues. Um, that is the focus for tomorrow. Thank you for everyone's comments.
I'd like to move on to Jen's paper, please. Jen. Thank you, James. Thank you. Um, everyone can hear me. All right. So I'm just going to highlight a couple of sections of my paper just to try to keep things as brief as possible. And then I'll take questions like Jennifer. Um, I do have sort of more some more technical information in the paper about how automated Braille is produced. But I'd like to just quickly go through the um, the, the benefits and drawbacks of automated Braille. I'm sure this is uh, like uh, like many others who've already spoken today. It, it's it's quite a um, it's a topic that we we all feel very strongly about. And I'm sorry, my pages are out of order, so I'm stalling. All right. Um, so I'm just going to highlight again. In terms of automated Braille, of course, benefits, um, there we go. Sorry about that, I thought I was all organized. Um, automating the process of Braille transcription, obviously it saves time and can be more cost effective. When a specific application is used, and this is, I, I distinguish between two types of automated Braille, one being um, sort of the automated the automation of braille to produce things like banking statements credit card phone bills all that kind of thing where an application it's a specific application it's working with specific documents uh, there are triggers the the application is run and you the the application is looking for specific things to know okay this is a table should be formatted a certain way etc so that's sort of one aspect of automated uh, braille so when this when this is done um, hundreds of pages can be processed in seconds. It's less expensive to build such an application than it is to sort of man manually transcribe each statement. When a Braille reader, um, and this is kind of the second type of automated Braille, and, and this is sort of more the focus of what we've been talking about, where we connect a refreshable Braille display to, say, an iPhone or a PC or whatever the device might be, and we get the Braille that we get based on how the screen reader um, or whatever, you know, software we might be using, let's say we're, you know, whether the screen reader is using LibLui, we get the output that, that we get based on how the Braille is being translated. So that's kind of the other type of automated Braille. Um, when we do this, content is instantaneously made available in Braille, as we know. The reader doesn't have to pay for the document to be transcribed or wait for it to be completed. Advancements in Braille-related technology have resulted in a dramatic increase in the quantity of Braille that is available. And this is fantastic I, from me, my, my personal sort of, my Braille reader perspective, this is, this is fantastic. Um, and I think, you know, there's a, we would, most of us, I think, would agree that it's much easier to get Braille today than it was, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But if for anyone that's familiar with Braille, you'd recognize that um, formatting requires, often requires human or manual intervention in order to be applied correctly. And there's certain rules as well that, you know, we just, they need to be, um, they need to be applied in a certain way. They need to have someone intervening. And so this is, again, the, you know, things that Jennifer was talking about where the software does it a certain way and it's not necessarily correct. Um, so I guess um, if we're, 
looking at the um, we're looking at sort of the disadvantages that's kind of where that that ties in um, we've got you know things like you know young young students learning braille or even older adults learning braille we want to make sure that the braille is is correct right we don't we don't want people to learn you know sort of going back to mike's comment or you know we, we don't we want people to learn accurate correct braille um some other disadvantages particularly complex textbooks anything with tables complex formatting that's really difficult to render correctly without a transcriber coming in and doing it so i always give a disclaimer that by no means am i saying that transcribers are not uh um, th this is a comment on, you know, transcribers are definitely still extremely val valuable and important and necessary. Um, but I guess I just, I want to encourage the, um, us to have discussions about this. Um, one other thing I just wanted to highlight is that um, one of the things that comes up quite a bit, at least in Canada, we, Braille Literacy Canada gets a lot of questions from people who have purchased a braille display or they've received some funding and they've got a braille display and then they're they're almost afraid to use it they're afraid they'll they'll break it they'll they're um you know very concerned especially now when training may be more difficult to come by so i, I wanted to take a couple of minutes and i've done this in my paper as well to encourage braille readers to i guess to be more proactive in their own uh document accessibility acquisition if we can call it that so don't be afraid to play with your braille display apart from dumping your coffee on it or throwing it across the room when you get mad yes they can be fragile but pushing the wrong button isn't you know going to cause your you know isn't going to break the display so we always encourage people play with them look online there's there are lots of resources user guides um we you know you'd be surprised maybe some of you wouldn't but how much is available to sort of teach yourself I would also say that uh, one of the things that we talk about as well is just learning about the transcription process. For some of us, you know, maybe we've grown up, we've all, we've had this beautifully formatted Braille, and we've never thought a lot about how the files were converted, how the content was converted. So I always encourage Braille readers, learn about the process, learn about software, especially, you know, Jennifer talked about Braille Blaster. You know, that's a software that's free of charge, uh, so you don't have to purchase you don't have to purchase anything and you can kind of play with it and you can experiment um, learn how the software works learn how your devices work just be persistent i i think a lot of the braille that i have acquired over the years i've acquired it because i've been pretty stubborn and pretty determined to have access to uh, braille whenever i possibly could so i'm excited at what's to come in the future of braille and technology because as many others have said uh, they definitely go hand in hand thank you jen that's great and i really like that last point about you know get familiar with your technology get familiar with the translation process the number of questions i see which are answered in the manual, and it's not difficult to find the manual, um, you would not believe. And I'm sure other people's experience is the same. Um, as a, as a pro computer programmer background, the manuals aren't written for fun, you know, guys. <laughs> anyway, any questions, please, for Jen? Margaret Bradshaw, UK. Margaret. Um, hi. Um, I'm just thinking about the issue of messy Braille, uh, which is cheap and immediate versus 
a really good Braille, which is done by using human intervention. And um, when, in what situations you would be quite happy with messy Braille, which you, you might actually get kind of information twisted due to weird formatting. Like if, if uh, the original print has boxes all over the place and the automation doesn't know which order in which to put those into Braille. Um, and, uh, and when you'd want really good Braille and uh, sort of adding on to that, how do you recommend encouraging producers that it is worth the investment of having human transcribers, um, whether those are producers of Braille or organizations that think I can take a file and just whap it through a translator and that's fine. Those are really good questions and I'll, I'll uh, try to address them quickly. The f I think I can answer your second question first, actually. I, I think there's there are different ways to convince producers. Sometimes I agree it's very challenging because if someone's kind of focused on the financial aspect of it. But there are certain, obviously, situations like textbooks, when you're tests, there are situations where it's critical that um, the producers invest in making sure that the documents are done well. And sometimes, you know, we have to fall back on the, well, this is what this is what the law says you need to do. And it's, it's sort of unfortunate we need to do that. But sometimes we do. Sometimes it's about lobbying. I know sometimes in the education sector, when we have teachers of the visually impaired, or even parents who end up having to sort of lobby and fight, again, shouldn't have to, but uh, to, to basically make sure that the documents are done properly. So I know that's not maybe a complete answer, but tying that into the first question about messy Braille, I think this is, you know, again, there are times where, you know, sort of perfect or almost nearly perfect Braille is is a must. I, and I keep coming back to tests and textbooks and things. Um, but also, I, I think if, if, I, if I were to just sort of my own, my perspective is that there are, it, it depends on how messy the messy Braille is. I, I've done things where I thought, oh, just I'll just kind of throw this into Duxbury and away I go. And then I do and I go, oh, okay, no, this is really bad. Like I even can't, you know, because, because of the, uh, not a criticism of Duxbury, but because of the source file was so, uh, was, was not good. So I think Braille readers have differing levels of tolerance of some of us maybe are more tolerant than others. Um, a novel, you know, I mean, notice all the mistakes, but I'm quite, you know, it's going to be less bothersome than if it's something that I have to present from that I have to use, you know, in, in a course or something. And I guess just my final, um, my final comment would be, sometimes it depends on what my options are. So if I have the time to get something, you know, manually done, or even if I have time myself to put the effort in to make it better, I will, but sometimes time is of the essence. And so I end up with something that maybe isn't as good. So there's all kinds of factors, I guess that's sort of all over the place, Thank you, really, Jen. because there's lots of there's lots of things to consider. Thank you, Jen. So yeah, um, and actually, just one little final comment there. It is interesting for me, having transcribed some of the documents for this conference into Braille and looked at the Duxbury files that were sent in by various people. It was very interesting to see some of it formatted with 
to within an inch of its life, beautifully done, and others not even knowing what a centering code is. Um, I'm not naming anybody's names, but that's the way it is. Which leads us very neatly on to Kathy's paper on following print. Always a good idea. Kathy, go ahead, please. Thank you, James. And yes, this follows on well from Jen's paper. My focus is from a transcriber perspective rather than a reader perspective, which is uh, what, what we've had so far this morning or this evening or this, this afternoon. One of the premises of UEB is to follow print. And as a transcriber, I'm now rarely given a print document to work from. Documents are usually in some electronic format. So the question I ask today, is an electronic document the same as a printed document? As a sighted reader, my eyes interpret what is on the page visually, but is what I see what is actually in the document? I found that most electronic documents, whether handouts for students through to textbooks have been produced with the premise, if it looks right, it must be right. And so my paper looks at four concepts to consider whether, when determining whether or not an electronic document actually follows print. And by extension, whether or not a braille translation of that document can be said to follow print. So the first thing is typographical symbols. Did the author use the correct typographical symbols? Have they used the correct de degree sign, the correct multiplication sign, the correct quotes? An X might look like a multiplication sign to the eyes and read as such, but it's not. The second thing is in heading structure. Has the author used styles to create a heading structure which enables e easy navigation through a document? Or did they manually format each heading or paragraph and worked on the premise again? If it looks like a heading, it must be a heading. The third one is reading order. An electronic document has a reading order. What is the order that that document is read electronically? Again, my eyes determine a logical reading order when I read a page of print. And that may, may or may not be different to the electronic reading order. And this becomes particularly apparent in textbooks, which have a mixture of columns, tables, diagrams, side notes, uh, information in boxes, all sorts of things you need, but but has has the reading order of that document been clearly defined? And then finally is graphical elements. To fully reflect what's on a printed page, an electronic document must have must ensure that that graphical items can be read electronically. They, one, they need to be correctly positioned within the reading order of the document, and two, alt text should be, uh, should be applied to them. So the summary of my paper, we ask the question, is an electronic document the same as a printed document? My answer is no, unless all four of the above criteria have been met. The challenge that we have now is to create an education system whereby editors, publishers, teachers, or in fact everyone has been taught how to construct documents properly, 
from the very first time they were introduced to word processing at school. Wouldn't that be a fantastic thing? And it might make my job as a transcriber easier. In the meantime, transcribers around the world are doing their very best to ensure that the braille they produce accurately reflects the original print, even if the electronic document they're working from does not. Thank you. Kathy, that is great. Thank you. Any questions? We'll have to keep it brief, I'm sorry, but uh, any questions? Jennifer Dunham, United States. Go for it. More of a comment. I just wanted to say, in addition to the question that you've discussed in this paper, I want to thank you for creating such an excellent resource for documenting the reason why it's so important to not run a, a Braille uh, document just through an embosser. We spend so much time advocating for this in education. Thank you for this resource to help do that. And I'm very happy for you to share this resource wherever you want it to go. So feel free to share it. Anyone else, please? James, Dina Mudley, uh, South Africa. Go for it, Dina. I think, you know, um, I was going to comment on Jen's uh, presentation. Um, one, one of the factors, I think, is, is to ensure that we try and make producing Braille as cheap as possible, because one of the uh, factors that, you know, prevents people from actually using it is, is, is cost. And I think what we should do is, is try and come up with some way of ensuring that we try and keep the cost of producing Braille as low as possible so that, um, you know, uh, there won't be an excuse uh, around cost then. Thank you. Kathy, would you comment? I, I agree. And, and certainly time is money, you know, sort of uh, particularly. And, you know, um, we find that by sourcing documents electronically and then putting them into, you know, sort of, and then using translation software, but but then ensuring that they're correctly structured, we can we can do a novel in a couple of days, and it is well structured. It is well, you know, sort of. It is probably probably hasn't been carefully proofread, but it but it would be ninety eight percent accurate with Duxbury software as long as the structure of of the original source document has been really well done, and it just makes it so much quicker and easier if you start with good structure in the first place. Thank you, Kathy. One final question, please. We have Pasha and George Bell. Pasha, great to hear you. Hi. Hi, I hope everybody can hear me. Yes. Go um, ahead. Hi, hi, everyone. Thank you. It's lovely to be here worldwide. Just to say, I wish to congratulate you on your paper, Kathy. I think it's wonderful that we hear the view of transcribers. Um, I cannot emphasize structuring enough. Um, and just to say um, a remark to Jane's paper, if I may, uh, I find that as a Braille user, functionality is important for me um, pertaining to messy Braille, um, depending on what I want to use the document for. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Pasha. And very quickly, George Bell, I have a feeling I know what you're going to talk about. <laughs> Are you there, George? I've just asked him to unmute. It's not, is it letting there me know? Are. There we are. Oh, we're back. Right. 
Right. Um, I know you and I have spoken and uh, Kathy and I have exchanged messages um, about this whole business of the cost of transcription, of which I know from 30 years of experience in this industry that a huge proportion of the cost of a transcription department is tidying up the mess that people are handed from you know, teachers. Oh, I need this this afternoon. Can you have it ready? It's a bit of Shakespeare, you know. <laughs> yada, yada, yada. I'm sure everybody's had that. Uh, <laughs> I can hear the laughter, yes. What I'm finding, or I've found in the UK, certainly I can't speak for other countries, is that our education system is failing miserably in the universities, in the teacher training colleges, etc., in showing people how words should be used properly. Uh, for example, I mean, you know, you start a teacher training course, what's the thing you're going to be using for the next two or three years? It's going to be Word to do your reports, etc., etc. Do we actually tell, show people the basics of how to use styles, how to use, you know, a difference between a a, a modified, you know, make it bold, make it underlined, make it larger heading, or applying a style which takes one mouse click or one, you know, one keystroke command. And I'm getting to a point now where I'm trying to muster help from a variety of people, perhaps to the point of even, you know, uh, I mean, James and I were talking about this today, and, and you know, what about getting somebody like Lord Lowe, for example, who's blind, he's an MP, or in the House of Commons, I should say, um, and uh, seeing if we can get support from the likes of him to approach these universities, etc. I also feel very, very strongly that ICEB's publicity you know, department, if it, as it were, should also be taking this in hand and seeing what they can do to, you know, promote uh, proper training in the tools that everybody uses. Thank you, so George. Leave it at that. <laughs> Thank you, George. And yes, I mean, I would echo the comments that Kathy's paper does really summarize the main issues for getting a good source document. Thank you, Kathy. We are quite low on time and we have two papers left. Dave, would you like to talk about Lib Louie briefly? So the paper is called Better Braille Translation for Everyone. And of course, the background to this is the fact that many devices include embedded uh, Braille translation. We think a lot about screen readers or off-the-shelf Braille translation software, but there are a number of devices that include embedded uh, Braille translations. I'm thinking of uh, embossers and so on. We're also aware of digital Braille library uh, services and systems that uh, often will automate uh, Braille uh, translations. So, uh, that's really uh, where this uh, this kind of comes from the um, the background. Uh, I work with uh, RNIB in the services department. We have uh, we operate a, a library uh, service. We all ha also have our kind of a retail uh, team as well, through which uh, we supply a number of Braille devices which rely on uh, Lib Louis. Um, and of course, um, RNIB is very involved in the whole area of uh, transcription. Um, so um, we have a, a very a vested interest in this subject and around 2018 we were hearing from customers on a fairly regular basis and from readers about um, issues in uh, Braille translation which we were able to trace back to uh, Lib Louis. So we undertook um, a review 
um, and we've described in some detail in the paper uh, that process. The rules were checked against a long list of uh, words, so uh, a huge corpus of, of nearly half a million words. And uh, some of the errors that were identified, um, we have a handout. Uh, Mike Howell mentioned it uh, earlier. Uh, if you get the paper, also get the handout where we include a paragraph of text, which was translated using uh, the um, early 2019 edition of Lib Louis and then the uh, edition of Lib Louis after um, our new rules and corrections were added. And there are, um, I think, over 2000 uh, corrections and, um, you know, not really words that are too obscure. So things like uh, non-executive, um, you know, we wouldn't expect to see um, the dot five O in that word. Biofuel, you wouldn't use the um, the off sign in uh, biofuel. And uh, one of particular interest for us at RNIB, where our um, production uh, takes place, is in Gateshead. And you wouldn't say Gateshed, would you? So uh, no SH sign there. Oh, a new one, uh, which is new not far from where the 2012 Olympic Games took place. So we added the new rules uh, to correct these errors and we checked them in uh, around uh, November 2019. Uh, and you can check out the handout um, for some more examples. Um, the fruits of our labour now um, are starting to seep out to readers uh, in some uh, products. NVDA in particular seems to have led the charge. They're pretty on it in terms of updating their uh, Lib Louis uh, tables and we certainly hope that others will follow. Uh, so what can you do really to help this effort? Well, first of all, make sure that you update your own software uh, so that you are using the latest version of Lib Louis that is provided, but then also encourage developers to build with the latest um, LibLui tables. And I appreciate uh, that in some cases that can be problematic where there are um, derivative works. Uh, support uh, LibLui with your book reports. Sponsorship is always welcome. Testing, there's still lots and lots to do. And I'll give way there and uh, take any questions if there's time. Thank you, Dave. Any questions? Um, Dina Mudley, South Africa. Go for it, Dina. I think one of the areas that LibLui has always fallen short is in terms of documenting uh, the, the uh, way to create uh, Braille tables. And that's been a huge problem because I think if we can get that uh, a, a proper tutorial put in place, uh, that will help to ensure that we have translation tables for a lot more languages as well. And uh, a lot more people can actually work on it, uh, opposed to a very few at this, uh, at, at this stage. Thank you. That's a very good point there, Dina. And I, I have to say, having, having taken the plunge myself, um, the actual mechanics of writing a Braille table is relatively simple compared with, for example, the version control system, which is interesting to say the least. And I know um, Christo has done some great work for Afrikaans in uh, Lib Louis. And I think, were you looking at Poser as well, Christo? Uh, what was your question that it was? Were, were you also looking at Poser? Uh, yes, we're looking at, at, uh, at Poser. Um, we are in the process of getting together a, a list of test words. We have a table, but we need to test it thoroughly. 
Wonderful. Yeah, France has been implemented the, over a year ago, and that's that's doing fine. Um, I think the the manual has been significantly improved uh, since we started looking at this. Uh, Dina, I think you should have another look at it. Um, I was able to learn from the manual and with a lot of help from James uh, to be able to, to create the table for Afrikaans. Thank you, Christo. Can we have one final question? Because I want to hear from Kirsten as well. Stuart Lawler from Ireland. Stuart. Uh, hi, uh, hi, James. Thank you very much. Uh, really interesting paper. Um, thanks very much for sharing. Uh, just, I suppose, is there a place where we can check in the current, I guess, the latest version of um, of the tables uh, for Lib Louis, if certain words exist or not? So, for example, uh, the ones that I can think of straight away are friendly, F-R-L-Y, definitely doesn't work in the current version of JAWS. And the word first has an apostrophe before the, uh, uh, followed by an S. So it's actually firsts. I can are, are tell you the that, answer. I can yeah. tell you the answer straight away. They are fixed. Okay. Um, fixed. So, so, it, so you need to report that to the supplier and to the. Okay. That's yeah. Because yeah, I, I, I have to, reported. To your employer. Know others have, yes. To your yeah, employer, yeah. Mr. Lawler. <laughs> no, no. And, and I know others have reported in the yeah. past and um, yeah. the vendors have said that it's a Lib Louis issue, but that's good to know. So I can. It I can is, go a, back it and is a Lib Louis issue. And I don't like to fixed. say it, but JAWS is still about six versions behind the current version. Well, I will speak directly to uh, Vespero tomorrow and see, can we do something about that? Yeah. And I, I would encourage you, LibLouis is updated every three months. There's a new version, beginning of March, beginning of June, beginning of September, beginning of December. And it is it would be great if all the technology companies could actually update. As I said, NVDA has that. Um, it would appear some other screen readers have not taken the plunge. Stuart, that is great. Thank you, Thank everyone. You, I am going to have to cut the discussion short on this one because I would like to hear from Kirsten. And Kirsten, please go ahead. Kirsten, are you there? I believe you may be unmuted, Kirsten. Am I unmuted now? There we go. Go for it, Kirsten. <laughs> it kept just making funny noises at me. Right, sorry. Um, I will keep this brief because I know we've got hardly any time. Um, so a little bit about me. Um, I'm um, a teacher. I was an English teacher for 15, 10, 15 years. I'm now a, a TVI or QTVI as we call it in the UK. Um, and uh, and I'm totally blind. So um, Braille has been, you know, my go-to from the age of whatever to whatever it would have been. And um, one of the things that I think has really been a game changer is technology. And um, that's why I think this sort of session is brilliant and that was kind of what inspired me I've had the idea for this paper in my head for a while and it just kind of all clicked together and, and I think it follows on quite nicely from a lot of the other papers tonight and it also leads on quite nicely to education tomorrow um, because my kind of 
as you'll as you'll understand from my background that my kind of approach to this is is braille in adult life my title is uh, use using braille technology for adult life but it's rooted in what we can provide uh in terms of for the children so my i i use a a tremendous amount of braille displays. I think I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, maybe. Um, and uh, I use them all for different reasons, depending on what I'm doing and where I am. And I know um, that from from what I've heard last night at last night's session and tonight's session, that a lot of you are like that as well. Um, and I think adults are um, very much like that. Um, I did a survey of a lot of adults because uh, I couldn't access children um, data protection um, quickly. But I did. I spoke to some of my friends, and I was, and also some some I put out there so other people could comment as well. And about uh, of the forty two people I asked, only five didn't own a braille device. Um, so I think that's pretty good going. Um, and I, I think that things have really come on in terms of, um, it was addressed earlier, but things like Kindle and things like that, that you can use Braille devices with. I know that was a massive game changer in my career. I didn't have to lug uh, heavy books around anymore. Um, but my major thing for this paper, really, the, the reason I, I wanted to write it was partly to highlight the different things that people could do using Braille devices. So everything from... Uh, reading with their children to doing uh, songs in singing songs in choir to um, now um, I didn't put this on the paper because it didn't exist but using zoom chat um, uh, and actually we're kind of adults are doing it really well but children aren't and it's because um of the cost and the access. So a child might have one braille display that the school's bought them or their parents have bought them or a charity's given them, um, thank goodness for those. And they will just, um, um, they will, um, uh, and they will only have that access to one and they might only see that one for five years, for 10 years. Um, and I think there's, um, an onus needs to be put on on TVIs and also blindness charities. Um, so we have a lot of societies in the UK for different areas and they do lots of uh, days for low vision devices, but they never do Braille. And actually, I know a lot of their ad, uh, their members are old people. But even so, you know, if you lose your sight at 30, you might want to learn Braille. Um, or you might want to know what's out there. So part of what I wanted to 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 really present was the idea that actually we need to be pushing braille to everybody not just people who are long-term braille users who will automatically use a range of devices probably because they always have um but also to people who learn it later in life or who learn it later in school or um who learn it but actually don't come to braille really until they're adult because they only have access to one thing um, i hope that summed it up thanks <laughs> Kirsten, thank you. Um, just before we get on to questions for Kirsten, Stuart, I have just tested the latest Lib Louie and reverse translating the word friendly and the word first, and they both work. You'll be pleased to know. So questions for Kirsten, anyone, please. 
silence. Geordie Howell. Geordie, go for it. From Australia. I just wanted to make a brief comment. Um, Kirsten, eight displays. That's very, very impressive. I also wanted to acknowledge um, your focus on adults learning Braille later in life. I think that Braille-related technologies can really assist, particularly those with, with voice output too in the, in the early days, but having that access to refreshable Braille under the fingers is, is really important, yes, for our kids, but um, providing that access for people who have learned Braille in adulthood is, is just as vital. So thanks for raising that. Thank you, Geordie. I think it's even more important now. I think we've discovered in the last however many months we've been in COVID crisis that actually people want are desperate to learn Braille and, and when they couldn't get the books, you know, RNIB sent out books and electronic Braille devices like we've already discussed and that was essential. Jen yeah. Golden, Canada. UK. Oh, go ahead, Margaret. Um. I just wanted to make a comment that uh, I really enjoyed your paper and lots of the points you made. And one thing you didn't mention just now, which I thought was really, really vital, was the point that electronic Braille is better for privacy. Yeah, and, that, that's and a audio. personal thing of mine that um, my husband's also blind and he does a lot of dictating. And I don't like dictating when I'm out and about, but I will happily write, you know, on my Braille display and... I mean, I will type in favour of if I don't have a Braille display, but now they're getting smaller. You can carry them around, so there's no excuse, really, apart from price. Stuart Lawler yeah. from Ireland. Just a re really quick uh, point. Uh, really good presentation, uh, Kristen, so thank you very much for sharing. James, can I just verify, what is the current uh, version of LibLouis? 3.15. Okay, thank you very much. Jen yeah, Golden from Canada. Oh, thank you. Um, I just was going to say that all of the points, Kirsten, that you raised, and I think everything that we've all been talking about today really does highlight uh, the need for low-cost refreshable Braille displays. I also yeah. am, um, you know, I have more than one display and for a number of reasons because of work, et cetera. But that's just, you know, we need to, we need to make them available, to make sure that they can be available to anybody who wants them. Yeah, that was one thing I didn't... Um... I, I, I didn't focus on too much because I sort of forgot to ask, but how people funded them, I think, is important because, uh, you know, I may be more able to fund them myself, and but I have uh, had had some through Access to Work or whatever as well. So I think that's, yeah, it's an important point. One James, question one I could ask slightly facetiously is how Kirsten funds her home insurance bill with eight displays, but there you go. They don't know about that. I'll just claim it at the time. <laughs> Kirsten, I do want to ask you one question, which is in your paper, you, you said that Braille displays are not suitable for music. And then later on in the appendix, music was specifically mentioned as one of the reasons people use their Braille display. Yeah, that was for for choir rather the reading lyrics rather i maybe should have um i was perhaps being a bit in the appendix being a bit aha uh -huh, because i know but obviously now it, it is more you know there are there are more you know it's it's progressing and obviously remember i wrote this in january and things can progress quite quickly in the braille world so thank you james one minute any final questions we have a question from jim just requested to unmute. Hello, Jim McCafferty from the UK. Hello. 
Hi. And just a couple of comments. Kirsten, that was a very interesting paper and thank you very much for that. It's been a, an interesting session tonight and I, th I thank all who have presented their papers. I would just like to support Jen in her view that people should be encouraged to use their braille displays. They're more ro robust than, than you think and you're not going to knowingly break them. Uh, the other point I would like to make is that we had uh, visually impaired teachers at school and if they had braille displays that we have now, their job would have been made much easier and I think it would have been more rewarding too for them to be teaching uh, visually impaired people. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. I'm going to have to draw the discussions to a close. We are slightly over time, but thank you everyone, especially to all those who submitted papers. A fascinating session and a wide variety of topics. Thank you. Thank you, James. It's now time for our break. We're going to take a five-minute break, and please do be prompt. And during our break, we will have another postcard from somewhere in the UK. Thank you. See you in five. You're listening to live coverage of the 7th General Assembly of the International Council on English Braille with Matthew Horsepool and Holly Scott Gardner. The time is 25 to 10 here in the UK, so yes, um, uh, they're quite right. Uh, we ran over slightly. There seems to be a technical issue with the postcard, but I think that's going on now. And as I say, we're not going to take that in the stream because um, of, of screen share quality issues there uh, but you can find it in the podcast of course um, just to mention very quickly that uh, JAWS 2021 is now in beta and I believe there have been some uh, Liblui improvements in JAWS 2021 uh, that may not have made it into JAWS 2020 so uh, it's possibly worth keeping an eye out for JAWS 2021 there uh, but just in the interest of, uh, of setting the record there um, joining me as ever Holly Scott Gardner um, really good discussion there, wasn't there? A really, uh, a, a, you know, really quite advanced level, which I think is good. Um, I'm not sure I was expecting it. Yeah, I wasn't really expecting it either. I think a lot of positive things came out of all of those presentations. And what really struck me was the level of engagement for all of them, actually. And I wasn't sure that I'd quite expected that, but it was a positive. Yeah, I think I expected some papers to get more engagement than others, and it was nice to see that there was a nice balance of uh, of stuff happening. Um, <coughs> excuse me. 120 orbits were sent out by RNIB. Um, that struck me as... Uh, I don't know what I thought of that number. I think I was expecting more orbits to have been sent out, but then 120 is still 120, right? I mean, I think we also have to consider the number of Braille users in the UK, and unfortunately it's not quite as many as we'd perhaps like. Also, the number of people who heard about it. I imagine most people would have heard online about it, so there's probably a lot of perhaps older Braille users who aren't so well connected online, unfortunately. Um, I, I think 120 during a pandemic is quite a nice number, honestly. And when you think that they were free, that's quite a significant amount of people. I mean, if we imagine that 
most of those people didn't have a braille display that's actually quite a lot of people now who have access to braille who wouldn't have been able to yeah and lots of people who need training and uh, and all that sort of thing so it'll be interesting to see how that uh, gets managed yeah. was there anything else uh, there was a lot covered i feel like a lot got covered um over and over again uh, which was good because it was good to have that level of discussion but a lot that we covered in the cmc report was also covered in these papers but was there anything else that really stuck out at you uh in the braille technology report i beg your pardon not the cmc report was there anything else that stuck out at you though uh, that that came up um i'm not sure that there was anything particularly surprising i think it's really important that what's come up is that we can benefit from automated braille translation but also have a need for transcribers and i know we already kind of discussed this actually before the um, technology report but i think it's really good to just go back to that and say actually you can have both of these things both can coexist quite nicely together and that one doesn't have to get rid of the other so we move on to the Code Maintenance Committee report next, uh, presented by Cathy Reeson. It was actually written by Phyllis Landon, uh, but will be presented by Cathy Reeson and discussions about uh, how it goes. And we're now going to pass over to... Oh, no, we're not. We've uh, we're just some technical stuff. I was going to say we're going to pass over to Judy Dixon. Um, but I actually am going to pass over to Judy Dixon now. So uh, let's get on with the session. Convene at this time. We'll now hear from Kathy Reeson, Chair of the Code Maintenance Committee. And Kathy, you have quite a lot of time. Thanks, Judy. Um, firstly, I would like to acknowledge the amazing and tireless work that Phyllis Landon has done for many years as the Code Maintenance Officer. And prior to that, in chairing the UA the UEB Rules Working Group. Phyllis has great wisdom and knowledge and leaves a huge legacy. And I've been appreciative of the support she's already given me as I take up this role. To, to introduce myself a little further, I feel honoured and was humbled to have been asked to take on this role. To play an active role in ICEB is new to me, I've only ever attended one other ICEB General Assembly, and that is the one in Melbourne. I was able to listen into the General Assemblies in South Africa and Baltimore the best I could. I have been a keen observer on the CM on the code maintenance uh, and guidelines for technical material listservs. Here in Australia, I'm a member of the Australian Braille Authority Executive. I have a passion for good documentation and have co-edited a number of the Australian Braille Authority documents. As a transcriber, I'm a keen user of the Duxbury Braille translation software and developed the Australian template, which meets the standards of our Australian formatting rules and guidelines. Over the years, I've been a keen participant in the annual conference of the Roundtable on Information Access for People with a Print Disability which is Trans-Tasman, that, that is Australian and New Zealand organisation and have regularly conducted workshops and presented at this event. So enough about me. I say thank you to Phyllis for writing the code maintenance report for this General Assembly. 
I'm not going to go into detail of the report at this stage, but hopefully cover many of the aspects over the allotted sessions of today and tomorrow. There's a section on reflections in the report, which gives a brief history of not just the Code Maintenance Committee, but the work preceding this. And Phyllis acknowledged key people such as Darlene Bogart, Joe Sullivan and Antoinette Botha in their work in developing Unified English Braille from its grassroots. The strength of this work is reflected in the fact that all members of ICEB have adopted UEB as their official code. And not just for, the, for English, but there are a number of countries which have more than one official language where it is not just a unified English Braille, but a unified Braille code. She also listed the objectives. Appendix one of the report lists the objectives of the Code Maintenance Committee. And it's encouraging for me to set to read that these objectives are, for, are not just focused on maintenance, but are forward thinking, because that is the role of the Code Maintenance Committee is to think forward, not just think backwards. When we look at the members and observers, this report lists the members of the Code Maintenance Committee as of, as of May 2020. Since then, there have been a couple of changes. Phyllis has stepped down as the Code Maintenance Officer and now has the status of a President's appointee, that is, a specialist on the committee. Myself, Cathy Reeson, has stepped into this position of Code Maintenance Officer and this should be ratified later this week. Bill Jolly, has stepped down as a president's appointee, but Bill continues as, as an observer and his knowledge and expertise will certainly continue to be appreciated. I've known Bill for many years and he just has an amazing wisdom and knowledge on Braille. The observers on our two listservs do more than just observe. These are all people for whom Braille is a day-to-day -day reality as readers, teachers, transcribers, or a combination of these. The fact that they ask important questions, give insights from differing points of view, provide real examples is invaluable in ensuring the integrity of the work of the Code Maintenance Committee. Observers are added to the listservs by recommendation of their respective country Braille authorities. So looking at the report, report, the report gives some rule book changes and additions which have occurred in the last four years. Following extensive investigation and research, and it was extensive, it was decided at the midterm meeting in Ireland to stay with the current rules for, for quotes and apostrophes, but remove the concepts of non-specific and predominant. Section 7.6 of the rule book was thus rewritten to reflect these changes. An error in the rule book was picked up with the example reactor, and this has been noted. The use of the line indicator, dots 456, was expanded. A new section was added to the rule book of 15.1.3, 15.1.4, 15.2.3, 15.3.4, 15.3.5, 15.3.6, 15.3.7, 15.3.8, 15.3.9, 15.3.10, 15.3.11, 15.3.12, 15.3.
to allow its use to show column breaks when presenting tabular material in a linear format. And a revision to section 2.6.3 adds the line indicator to the standing alone rule. A new symbol for the check mark or tick, dots 4146 was approved, which meant a new section 3.28 has been added. The word deafblind with a medial capital, that is capital deaf, capital blind, or one word, was approved to allow the short form, the use of the short form blind as a special exemption. Further discussion on medial capitals is now ongoing. All of these above changes have been listed on the web, on the ICEB website, and a summary document will be compiled in the near future. One of the things that I'm currently doing in the background as part of my role is working on the existing rulebook files, both in print and braille, ready for when we consider it is time to publish the next edition. This job is certainly been made easier because Christine Simpson, when producing the current edition, used very strong and clear structures. And I'm personally finding going through the rule book like this is giving me a much better understanding of the, of the complexities and the subtleties of the rules. Language translations of the rule book. With permission, the rule book has been translated into French by Braille Literacy Canada, and permission has been given to translate the rule book into Japanese. The University of Laos is seeking permission to translate the rulebook into the Lao language. As the ICB policy is for recognised Braille authorities to request permission, such permission was denied an individual to translate the rulebook into Spanish. The section of the report which, which deals with guidelines for technical materials, I will leave to summarise at tomorrow's session. So looking forward, we've got the current charges which are relating to the rule book. And the current charges are number 28, to clarify the effect of the medial capital on standing alone. This is currently in discussion and it has been expanded to not just medial capitals, but to include any capital indicator or terminator and or type form indicator terminator. And the scope of the discussion is looking at the words on the short forms list or words meeting the special short forms to meet the criteria that are in 10.93. Uh, we've got charge 29 is to clarify where letter sequences are confused with short forms. So a rewriting of that section to make it clearer. Some symbols which are on the charge list is a symbol for the German asset or the double S. Uh, symbols for letter modifiers found in the South African language, a dot above, dot below and circumflex below. And I would really need to to have a chat with our South African colleagues to see 
what they have done about it themselves at this point to see how that can be incorporated into the rule book. And whether or not to keep, there was a, a symbol listed in the reader rules for the grave accent standing alone, which has not been included in the in uh, the rule book as such. So whether we need whether we want to keep that or not. Uh, for contractions, uh, there's uh, the code, uh, the charge 22 to expand. Appendix 2, word, the word list, to include problem words. Work, had, uh, work was done on, on such a list by FM, K. Holbrook and James Bowden, and this is reported in, in and Phyllis reported that in, in the Code Maintenance Committee report. It would be good to, to revitalise this work and then decide, plus decide whether or not such a list is incorporated into the rule book or published as a standalone document, which is endorsed by ICEB. And then we've got a charge, which is to review the rules 10.10 .10 and 10.11 on bridging to clarify contraction rules for prefixes and suffix in, gen in general, and in particular relating to chemical, medical and technical nomenclature. There is also a list of potential charges, which I haven't, which were not listed, and I will discuss at a later date, at a later meeting with the CMC meters meeting CMC members to determine priority. So going back to what is currently in discussion, in current discussion is the status of medial indicators and terminators, specifically looking at. The, word, the short for, words on the short forms list and the 10 special cases listed in 10.93. So the proposed changes on the table are at the moment, adding a section 2.65 understanding alone to clarify the standing alone status of words which include medial indicators, which are allowed under the short forms. 10.92 and 10.93. And this is to state that the whole sequence, including the medial indicators, must meet the criteria of 2.61 to 2.63, which is what can go before a word, what can go after a word for it to be standing alone. So there are a number of examples which have been put into this, uh, which is like uh, our deaf, our deaf blind in quotes, capital, capital quick, capital draw, all, it, all one word put into parentheses, uh, an italic, italic pre with non-italic paid, all one word, and then the exclusion of deaf forward stroke deaf blind with, with the medial capital in deaf blind because the forward slash, slash negates the standing alone rule and quick capital quick, capital draw dot debt, as in the word quick draw is not standing alone, so therefore it negates the standing alone rule. We then need to look at 10.92 and 10.93 to add the provision that you can use medial indicators with any of the words on the short forms, word, short forms list 
or uh, the special words such as, I've got the list here, children, blind, first, friend, good, letter, little and quick, um, with the proviso that the medial indicator has to either be immediately before the short form or immediately following it. And then a reference to be added to the short forms list uh, that medial capitals and, and or terminators can go in. Medial capitals and or type form indicators. The other suggested rulebook changes which have come about with this was a suggested rewording of the rules for the list construction of the short forms list to clarify the role of the Code Maintenance Committee. And there are also a list of suggested examples to be included throughout the rule book showing medial capitals. Um, so time for to open this session for discussion. Uh, but remember that discussion on the guidelines for, for technical material, I'm deferring to the session that we have for tomorrow. Thank you. So um, anything you want to say on the report as such or on the or on the future work, I'm willing to listen, you know, sort of time to uh, give your questions and or opinions. We have one raised hand there from Ivan. Do you want to take that question, Cathy? Yes, yes. Okay, I'm just asking to unmute. Ivan, if you could just unmute yourself, please. Um, can, you, can you hear me? Yeah. Yep, oh, I can hear you, Ivan. Um, okay, um, good, good morning, good afternoon. My name is Ivan from Spain, and thank you very much. It's, it's been an honor to be an, an observer. And I'd like to ask you a question. I don't know if, you, if I understood properly. Is there, you were talking about a grave accent sign, which is in the reader book. And is it, is it a different book from the, from the rule book? And where can I find it? I, am not, I don't seem to be able to see these is, different separate books. Right. The, this is a, the symbol was for a the standalone graph uh, character, uh -huh. which, which was recommended in the original, what, what are called the reader rules, which was way back prior to the rule book of symbols uh, of how Braille, uh, unified English Braille should should be read. It this symbol was not included in the in the current rule book, and so and so it is actually that we need to investigate whether we should add this symbol to the rule book. It is on you know sort of I can get that symbol up on my keyboard. I can press the the graph uh, symbol on my keyboard and get that that um, that symbol. So that is, uh, so no, you won't see it in the current rule book. Okay, so thank, uh, thank you very much. Okay, and we have a question from Bart as well, if I'm gonna unmute him. Bart, can you hear us? I can hear you, do you hear me? 
Hello, Bart. No, he's still muted. Judy? Kathy, can I just come in a little bit there on this grave accent, please? You, you may, James. Um, so just to clarify that the grave accent symbol is listed in Appendix 3, but there is no mention of it in the main text of the rule book. Thank you. Aha. You are correct, James. Yes, thank you. Also, uh, it is um, there is is some historical thing with that graph character is that um, historically the Duxbury Braille translator used that character for uh, to distinguish single quotes. Um, that's not as as needed now, but there is a historical thing that we need to look back at as to uh, that it is that you know, so it, it, if we say it is a character in its own to stand alone, that uh, translation software needs to um, respect that. Absolutely. For those who like Unicode numbers, it's 0060. <laughs> Thank you, James. <laughs> Yes. In the list here, Kathy, it looks as if Bart should be able to hear us and speak. Will we try that again? Yes. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, brilliant. Okay. <laughs> um, no worries, thank Bart. You. Thank you very much for opening this up for observers. I'm coming from the Braille Authority for the Dutch language, which is used in the Netherlands and Belgium. So thank you for giving the opportunity to join. Um, we are in the process of uh, publishing an 8-dot um, Braille code for our language. And um, I hear you speak about a rule book, and um, I ju was just wondering if this is about 6-dot or 8-dot Braille, and if there is somewhere a chapter how you transition from 6-dot to 8-dot Braille, because we, we thought it would be easy, but you have to get rid of the, the, the signs that are preceding. You don't want consecutive um, characters in 8-dot Braille. So um, is this rule book for 6 or 8 dot braille and is there uh, a transition from one to the other? Right, Unified English Braille is a 6 dot braille code. So and when, I, when I refer to the rule book, it is the rules of Unified English Braille 2nd edition 2013, which we affectionately known, which is affectionately known as the rule book. So it is for a, it is a 6 dot code. Um, this is prior to my uh, involvement. I, I do believe that 8-dot Braille was discussed early on when they looked at Unified English Braille but decided to stick to a 6-dot Braille code. So there isn't a transition process being looked at at so all. So also when we were discussing earlier today about the Libluwi uh, table, this is also 6-dot Braille? That is also for 6-dot Braille, yes. Thank you for the clarification. Yep. Anyone else? Seven, eight, I've got looking at what time is of an hour. No, good. 
Kathy, I have a question. Thank you, James. So it, it's required. It's it, it's about priorities of things. As I look at the charges and the potential charges, I I think some of them are big pieces of work, and some of them are hopefully a lot smaller pieces of work. Um, to give you an example, the apostrophe was a big piece of work, but a, a rule clarification. No, to... no, no, a huge piece of work, James. Yeah, okay, a huge <laughs> piece of work. Um, but there are some, for example, to find a symbol for the German set. Once you find the symbol, you slot it in, that's job done. Absolutely. So um... I'm wondering if if there's a case for trying to work out the size of some of these tasks ahead of time and then saying, okay, let's group this little bunch of five little tasks and let's try and get all these charges, da -da 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 -da, and then pick um, one big one to work on. Just a thought. I, yeah, I have already um, had thoughts on this and certainly um, the German S, I've already, you know, sort of, um, I've been, in, in discussion with Phyllis as to where she, you know, sort of uh, what her thoughts were of of that, and I've sort of been waiting to after the general assembly to put some of these up. So certainly, um, yes, I see that that there are some some ones which are quite simple to do, uh, or appear to be quite simple to do. Sometimes what appears simple ends up being complex, oh, yeah. and, and certainly. And, and I certainly think that um, we can be working on more than one charge at a time. There, there are. Uh, I just need to open a different document so that I can see what I'm looking at. While you're doing that, can I just note also that the dot above accent mark is also used in the Polish language. And we do have yes. some Polish population in the UK. And I have heard the question, how do I do this? So it's not just that the South African languages. Oh, yes, that it came through it, through South it Africa. It came through and, South Africa, yes. Yeah, and a lot of these things are, which is why it has to be kept, you know, sort of properly done because you've got to make it forward going, not just dealing with the uh, the immediate so, you know, sort of we have got some um, potential charges coming up, some of which um, I can see as being uh, outsourceable as well, in, in a sense, like the problem words, for, uh, well, which is currently a charge expanding, extended to the list of problem words. That is what I would say is outsourceable in 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 inverted commas, that we can assign a couple of people to work on that. It doesn't necessarily, and then it comes back to the to the group. So it doesn't have to take up a lot of code maintenance committee work to do that. Another one which is which has come up quite often is doing an index for the um, for the rule book. I think it's, I think it's worthwhile at this point actually having some discussion on the index. I think an index for the rule book is actually a really worthwhile thing to do. However, to mark up the Word document to automatically generate an index is a huge undertaking. I've done it previously. I did it for our Australian training manual, and it really was a big 
job to do, worthwhile doing, but a huge undertaking. Um, but when I look at our rule book, I think that do we need to index, do we need the index to refer to print page numbers or is, is it actually better to refer to section numbers like, you know, 10.1.3 and whatever? This actually, if we did it that way, it'll make the index easier to manage in both print and Braille. We can do the index as as, as an independent document and then slot it into the rule book. The Braille version has a running footer on it. So it so on a hard copy, uh, the Braille version for hard copy has a running footer. So section numbers are easy to find are just as easy to find as print page numbers. And um, and similarly, in a print book, it's just as easy to find the section numbers than a print page number. So, and, and again, the index, and I do believe an, in, a, an index has been produced somewhere I couldn't find, I, I went searching for it, has been produced somewhere, that, again, that can be done independent um, of the code maintenance listservs and then be brought up for ratification. Kathy, sorry to interrupt. I think we have a comment from George Bell on this. No worries. Yep. So I'm just going to unmute George. Yeah. So a couple of a uh, couple of things. One question for uh, James and one question for Kathy. Uh, James, what is the uh, circumflex standing on its own? What you refer to as the up arrow. What is the current uh, or should be the current braille for it? <laughs> it is dot four six dot one six. Four six one six for a standalone circumflex. Sorry, circumflex. Apologies. You know, the, the, graph. the upper the upper the sorry, graph, yeah, shifted six. Oh no, that's that is circumflex. That is dot four dot five dot four dot two six. Four dot two six. I think. Anybody yep. think I'm wrong? I look up my rule book. Jennifer, I think you're right. We call it a carrot, but yes. That's yeah, all right. I was just out. checking it against the latest, uh, the Duxbury that's about to come out. So that was what it was uh, all about. The yes, graph accent is, is the, to the left of the one, George. Sorry, yeah, sorry. I was um, uh, uh, left of the one. Yeah. Yes. The graph oh, yeah. On the, yeah. Sorry, you're right. Yes. That's Dr. Sorry, sorry, I'll get the, well, speak to so many different countries at the moment. I'm just not sure where I am. Um, uh, what was the other question? Yeah, for Kathy. Um, Kathy, just a thought. There is a utility, which I'm digging a bit deeper into, whereby uh, you can build what's called a linked index in Word. Now, that means that Word will generate a an index and the page numbers will you know, if you click on a page number in the index, it will link you straight back to that particular section. Do you follow what I'm saying? Oh, I yes, I I, I fully understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just purely that it, you know, if I if, if you were doing using print page numbers um, for a braille copy, obviously that would be uh, you know 
easy enough to, to follow through. Um, as far as a digital copy, um, you know, a, a word copy or whatever, it makes it absolutely wonderful to be able to look back quickly uh, from the index to wherever you want. I just thought I'd mention it as it is software that is available and it's not expensive. George, can I ask, does that utility also work if you choose to mention section numbers instead of page numbers? I know it's an option in the yeah you the can yeah you can have it uh, you can have it that way yes. Oh, brilliant! Thank um, you. And it, yeah, and I think the section numbers to me is is the preferable approach than page numbers. Well, as long as you don't have large sections. I think you. This is. <laughs> Jen from Canada, I think you could uh, you can get specific like section one point two point because yeah. I would agree with Kathy that the section is actually much more helpful than I couldn't tell you for the life of me what page something's on, but I'm more likely to be able to tell you the section. Oh yeah, I mean if you got section and you know a section and page number or section and whatever, it would it would uh, help. Yeah. Yeah, I I also think that when you're um, when you've got a combination, you know, sort of, we've got a document which is both a print document and a Braille document being read by print readers and Braille readers. Mm. Um, it's much easier to correlate page numbers, you know, sort of section numbers between the two documents than correlate mm. print page numbers. I, yeah. I know print pages are shown in the um in the Braille, but I think the section numbers are much easier to correlate. Yeah. And it also is, you know, sort of one of the, one of my things is to look at is um, with the next version of the rule book is, is, is we also do an electronic Braille copy. Wouldn't it be great if the new BRF format is um, available by then? Uh, <laughs> but to do an electronic Braille copy so that, you know, sort of which is all one all one document rather than broken up into a number of volumes. Well, perhaps if we have a resolution, James and I can start working on something like that, putting something together with uh, possibly with Duxbury as well. Yeah. Kathy, this is Frances Mary from the um, from the US. Hi. Yes. Okay. Um, Go ahead. Just Thank you. Just briefly saying that you mentioned that somebody had started an index. That's actually on the Banner website. It was uh, done by two um, transcribers in um, uh, Oregon, I think. Yes, the Willamette Education Service District. And so I just I just emailed it, emailed you the link. Yep. Thank you. I yeah, um... it, it does. I think does use page numbers. Yep. But uh, Margaret Bradshaw from the UK. Um, hi, Margaret. Hi. Um, I want to thank you for all the help you've given me through the years. Uh, just a vote of appreciation for you and uh, the fact that you have this role. Um, in terms of the index, um, I would also support the section numbers being used, um, partly because uh, I see no reason why print should be held in higher esteem than the Braille page numbers. I think it's fair Agreed. enough to print Agreed. Page Braille page numbers for people who are trying to use the two versions together when they're consulting about an issue. But if you're going to have an index, why should it prefer 
the print page numbers over the Braille page numbers. It's just uh, ethically dodgy, I think. Um, and the section numbers would be very useful. The only, th and especially if Jen's idea of the subsections being used. Oh, yes, yes. I, I wouldn't go to the major sections. I would you know, sort of bring it down to, yeah, the, the most, um, yeah, the most defined that you can make it. And that solves yeah. the electronic Braille version as well. Yes. Good. That's uh, all. Phyllis here. Hi, Phyllis. Uh, I just have a question for George. My understanding, now this was a few years ago when we were talking about um, using uh, a linked um, version to produce an index. How, how big does the, the actual document become if you, if you do that? Does it become unwieldy? I mean, no, it's a it, huge document already. No, it it uh, it doesn't actually. I mean, okay, yes, if you add an index, it depends how large the index is, but I wouldn't describe it as, you know, a significant increase in size, not by today's standards. You know, I mean, when you can buy a when you can buy a, a terabyte SD card, which will virtually stop RNIB's entire Braille library, you know, um, of BRF files, it starts to bring things into a little bit of perspective. Okay. I'm just... I think, George, the question is not so much the storage, but the manipulation. Um, I know sometimes uh, programs like Microsoft Word can sometimes balk if you've got a 500-page document, 17,000 pictures, whatever, then oh, things yeah. can get tricky. <laughs> Absolutely. That's more, that's more the both. question I think Phyllis is asking. Am I right, Phyllis? Yes. Oh, well, I mean, obviously, if you, you know, it, it, it's, it's tricky to say. I mean, how often are we, apart from books, obviously, but, I mean, how often are we actually dealing with 500-page print books? To get them into Braille, we'd break them down into volumes, wouldn't we? Yeah. Not not. Um, we don't. If if we're doing hard copy Braille, yes, we break it down down into volumes. But if we're doing soft copy Braille, no, we don't break it down into volumes. And you know, sort of, which is part of James's presentation. We you know putting 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 books back together again to a, a single uh, a single uh, thing for for um, electronic reading that you know so if you don't want to close this file and there's I, I, I open another file because you've just finished a chapter you want to just keep reading a book so mm. um, we're, but we're talking specifically about the rule book and producing right. an index I, for the rule book. And it's currently over 300 pages. Um, and so if you add an index to that with links. I yeah, and, the, and we haven't yet made a decision as to whether to include the guidelines for technical material in the rule book or not, which will actually, the way the guidelines for tech, 
for technical material as is going with a lot more examples and things is going to be quite a sizable document in its own right where in some ways you want the the index to be able to re to reference across both books or both documents as well so um yeah there's quite a bit to think about in the whole in the whole thing and and as you put it together it'll start coming together but it, it is a uh, yeah, quite complex in its thinking, but not in, insurmountable. And I do take your point of, of 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 them being linked, George. And we've just got to play with it and look at it and see how it works. Mm, mm. Um, but it is, you know, sort of, it is a good point having, you know, sort of that, you know, sort of, and and wouldn't it be great? In, in an e-braille, you know, sort of an e-braille environment that we can have the same thing that it links, that, you know, sort of that you have links. You might want to put that to Duxbury as well. We are. It's in the spec. <laughs> it's definitely in the spec. It's in the frame. <laughs> That's right. Which, you know, sort of, which we then have to take into account. Yeah. I think, I think. Uh, and it is, you know, I have to say, having looked, looking at the rule book and going through it at the moment that I'm doing, uh, Christine did a fantastic job of, of of it all being styled up, which has actually made it much easier. Oh yeah, yeah. And of course, and of course, using styles is, um, you know, make 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 makes it easier to. Add on things like the links, or add on things that are, you know, yeah. sort of particular things. So we're, you know, we're one step ahead, uh, just in in structuring the rule book, mm. um, in in a good way to start with. And it's um, when you look at complex documents like this, which are for print and, you know, sort of, if I was just doing the rule book for the print environment, gee, it would be easy. But doing it for the Braille environment, you know, sort of thinking about the Braille environment as well, how does it translate? How does it read? How does it, you know, sort of all of those things is, makes it, you know, sort of, it's not in, they're not insurmountable, but they're things that have to be thought about at every step of the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I understand and appreciate the difficulties. I mean, I know I came across one example of a, a, a mathematical formula um, which looked okay on paper, but going to your thing again, it looked okay on paper, but when it went into Braille, it was a shambles. And the reason was that there were actually three math-type equations all sort of dragged together to make it look right. <laughs> yes, that's right. And, you know, I think um, I pointed that one out to, to you or somebody on, on that. But, I mean, you know, these are things that one learns from this. Uh, yes. You know, and again, I think that's the same thing with building indices and linking and so on and so forth and styles. Yeah, and 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 I think the other thing is that that's really that really is important is that when people come across things which they say this doesn't read right or this doesn't read correctly, please let us know because then we can work on it. We can we can do it, you know, sort of James's point, which we had discussion last week on, on the uh, Lib Louie not doing dashes correctly because there was a because there was a variety of dashes used in in the rule book. That 
you know, sort of I've got that noted and, you know, sort of all already working on making sure that the rule book, you know, the next edition of the rule book will have that um, <laughs> rectified. Yeah. Yeah, well, you've got to sort Word out first because Word has an option to automatically change a couple of dashes into an M dash. I have that switched off, George. Don't worry. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too, but a lot of teachers don't. <laughs> <laughs> They've just moved me to Office 365. My Duxbury's all wrong. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Moving on a little bit. I'm just looking at time. Okay. Some of the things that are um, some potential charges, and one of my one of my things that I want to do post. General, General Assembly is to hold a Zoom meeting with our with with just the voting members of the Code Maintenance Committee to actually look at our um, priorities, to look at where 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 we want the priorities to go. So, and and there are some things um, in potential charges which came from Phyllis because I'm 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 still new to this role and I'm still working working out some of the things. Uh, Uh, some of them, uh, one one which is in, interesting, uh, a little bit more on on medial punctuation and indicators in general, not just looking at the short form words, but but you know sort of the use of medial punctuation where there's there, there's an example of the word capital D I S and then lowercase T U R B being the whole word disturb. How, how does that get translated? You know, sort of how 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 is that correctly brailled? Do you use? And there's a variety here which are all look very weird to me, but my view would be double cap dis terminator t u r b, but it is that according to the rules, you know, we need to have that clarified. We need to look at the section 15 on scansion, stress, and tone just to tidy it up. It, it's um, uh, the contractions AR and GH to not be preceded. Or, you know, some of these are very simple ones. Some of these are not. Um, not to be used when preceded and followed by a space to avoid confusion with diagonal line segments. Do we need to expand the number of prefixes for type forms? And that was intended way back with what was called Committee Two, which is prior to the rule book. Um, there's there's a sort of a suggestion to add a second version of the short forms list in alphabetical order rather than order by short form. So those things need need to be discussed as to do we want to do them, and then by deciding yes we do want to do them. Who's going to do it and how is it going to be done? And, and again, some of these are, you know, sort of that one, a list in alphabetical order is quite easy. You bring up the list, um, say, please order it al alphabetically and, and, you know, sort of word will do that. Some are, some are more uh, tricky. So from here, you know, sort of, there will be more going on. I would like to 
Um, I have to say I find the listservs a little frustrating sometimes because I'm sure you've all got an opinion of what's being put up, but you're not stating the opinion. And your opinions do count, even, even if it's negative. We need to hear what people's responses are to what is being posted and what is being suggested because we can't come up with something which is robust, something which is correct, and something which covers all aspects. You know, often, you know, sort of often I'll I'll suggest something and Phyllis will say, well, actually, and you go, oh no, that doesn't work. No, that is not going to work. So we've just got to have, you know, sort of I really do respect people's opinions going up, 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 up on the list of whether you are listed as the word observer doesn't mean you simply observe. The word observer means you are actively involved in giving your opinion. So I really want people's opinions to come up because otherwise we don't get the best outcome as, as we make decisions. Um, the last four years we got through a really big one, which was the quotes and apostrophes. And whilst that wasn't necessarily the outcome of that was not probably the ideal outcome for, according to all people, it was the best outcome. I, I feel it was the best outcome that could be made at that time. So, but that took a lot of time and a lot of discussion. And without the discussion, we don't come up with the best outcomes. So, yes, I do encourage everyone to give their opinion. Morgan from Canada. Oh, go ahead, Jen. Um, Hi, thanks, Jen. Hi, Kathy. I just wanted to say two quick things. One is I, I think you're doing a fantastic job, um, Kathy. I know it's new and it's a big job and you have tough shoes to fill, but I think you're going to wonderful job so far and I just a comment on um, well, both voting members and observers one of the things that I found particularly since I took on being the voting member is that being on this CMC list is excellent for because if you're going to comment our opinions are important but I find that I I want to read through everything in a lot of detail and really think it through so that I'm not just saying you know that I'm giving oh. my opinion but that I'm thinking it through and so I it's helping me learn the code better so that's one thing that I just wanted to highlight absolutely yeah absolutely thank you Jen yes yes comment you know sort of I I would encourage anyone who is a observer and or member is to read your rule book carefully go back and read it and read it and read it. It's amazing how every, every time I look at it, look at the rule book, I find something different. I say, oh, oh, I didn't, I missed that. I didn't know that before. I, you know, sort of, and and there are a lot of cross-references that you need to make, you know, sort of when looking at the medial capitals, it was going through the rule book and finding where, where are all the sections of the rule book that you actually need to look at? It's not just one little paragraph. It's, you know, three or four different sections that you've got to actually look at and that it affects. And, you know, sort of it's uh, really, yeah, it's quite, um, quite, yeah, quite challenging at times and quite complex. And, 
and I really do appreciate. The other thing that I, I really appreciate is people picking up my errors. I don't have the, you know, sort of, I don't necessarily have the benefit of a, a, a proofreader uh, to do things. So, uh, Jen, Jen, you've been fantastic in picking up the little errors that I that have come through and also shows that you are reading it in detail and I really appreciate that. Well, there aren't many. <laughs> Aren't many errors to find? <laughs> I think Jane. we can thank the. I think we can thank the Duxbury Braille, Braille translator for that too. <laughs> James Bowden from the UK. Hi, yes, James. Two two things. I think having a, a CMC meeting is a great idea. It concentrates minds as well. Um, sometimes I know part of the problem of the uh, mailing list, great though it is, is when one has a day job and 25 other projects, uh, something's got to give. And, and I, I, I hold my hand up there sometimes. Um, so having actual a, a meeting where we discuss X, Y, Z, that actually concentrates the mind that you should read this before the meeting and there's a deadline and we're going to discuss this, etc., etc. I think that's a great idea. I... This, um... I, I I agree. We've now actually moved into a worldwide thinking of using things like Zoom and whatever to um, to have meetings, to actually meet globally. And I think let's use this tool that we you know that um, we've all now become a lot more familiar with, a lot more comfortable with. Um, Thank you, thank you, COVID nineteen. I think it's about the only thing we can thank COVID nineteen for, <laughs> but but it has made us much more comfortable of of you know sort of meeting globally in a way that is cost effective, you know sort of you know you need an internet connection and we can meet globally um, as long as we can find a time frame that suits it, ev everyone. But I think um, I would like to hold and you know sort of semi-regular code maintenance meetings just to yeah to allow the 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 good discussion which is you know so you don't get just over uh, an email list yeah sounds great to me the, the other the other point i was going to going to make is i know the apostrophe issue took a lot of time it took a lot of effort etc one piece of feedback we heard resoundingly in the uk was that grassroots Braille readers really appreciated the opportunity to contribute to the survey. Yeah. And uh, that look, that process was a long process, but it was such a necessary process and it was mm. a good process. Mm. Yes. We have a question on there, Ilka. We have someone with a raised hand. Oh, hi, can I just talk? So it's, it's a bit different. Hi, Jodie. Hello. Hello, Kathy. It's a bit different to the Zoom I'm used to um, with the Department of Education. Um, sorry, just going back to the short form list. Um, I know we're sort of diverging a bit from that, but something popped into my head. Just that um, in the Australian um, training manual, it's listed as um, the short form extension list where in yes. the rule book it's like an appendix and I just wondered if that sort of different terminology could be kind of reconciled. Yes, it probably could be. The um, 
the use of the term ex- short form extension list was 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 a decision that was made when we compiled the rule book. So it was actually because it was uh, felt at the time that there were some Australian people who who wouldn't quite understand what the short forms list meant. That you know, sort of it's it's an extension. So it was a yeah, it was a political thing to actually. Uh, well, this is what I was that way. I was familiar with that, and so then yes. for me, like when I looked at the rule book later on, you know, when I knew a bit more about Brown, yeah. I'm like, oh, oh, this is the same list. It just took a yes, little bit. It is the same. It is the same list, but with a different yes. name. It, it did throw me yes. for a bit. Yeah, <laughs> glad for your feedback <laughs> because because um, my 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 preference was to use the. Sh- the term short forms list, but um, I got I uh, we were a team a team and um, I was in the minority on that one. <laughs> you, well, you raise I a really I'm interesting favoring, point. I'm probably favouring the extension because that's what I first was exposed to, but I'm also yes. consistent. So yeah, perhaps I agree. Yeah, I agree, Jody. Yes, you, James, you were saying. You raise a really interesting point there about terminology, and I think that is an, a factor which we will probably need to consider with respect to the index. So, for example, a Braille reader could be a person who reads Braille, or it could be another name for a Braille display. Yes. And, and even with, with an appendix, yeah. A, an index. We have different terms, you know, yes. across for for some of our punctuation. We have a full stop. The um, you know United yeah, States a have a, has period. a period. That's right. Yeah. So it's uh, so terminology is actually a really important. Yeah. This is uh, Francis consideration. <clears throat> yes, Francis. Yes, FM. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I uh, quite like um, Jody's comment about the short form extension. I think um, my students would find it easier to understand that term, actually, <laughs> um, <laughs> because I do think that there's there's quite a bit of um, misunderstanding about what what that list is and how and whether people can create their own short forms or not. Um, and I've quite forgotten my second point. So I'm going to mute myself again until I think about it. Sorry. <laughs> um, George has a question as well. Just yes. Yeah, I was only going to say that I have an experience of uh, doing quite a bit of indexing one way and another. Uh, the way around that is usually you know, period, a.k.a. full stop, or full stop, a.k.a. period. Oh, yes. You know, and this is where I have to be conscious as well that terminology, you know, varies between, you know, country. And that is one that I admit is a massive challenge. So you have my sympathy there. <laughs> okay. This is Look, I, again. Sorry. Yes. Sorry, I remember. Go ahead. I, <laughs> I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. Sorry, I'm taking, I'm taking minutes at the same time because I'm secretary, so I can't keep two things in my head. Um, my other 
comment that I was going to make that James's um, comment about terminology re reminded me of goes back to the issue that you were talking about with the um, the problem words because James and Kay and and I have had lots of little and Phyllis have had lots and lots of little back and forth about various things. And of course, pronunciation is one of the, the issues that we run into when words might be pronounced differently in different um, English speaking countries. <clears throat> one of the examples that I know came up was Beethoven, which in the UK supposedly has an aspirated H, right, James? Whereas in the U.S., we tend not to think of that as an aspirated H, and there, and the the list that we had compiled, we had lots of discussion about things like pronunciation and how that might actually affect. Mm. So, um, anyway, I look forward to um, talking oh. with you more about about that issue because I do think, and I know at one point, um, Phyllis and um, you could chime in here, in here. One of the things we had discussed even was whether it might be possible to defer to a particular dictionary, for example, that, you know, that might be a way of, of settling certain issues. But then, of course, then the issue became, well, would it be, a, a, you know, a British <laughs> dictionary or a U.S. dictionary? <laughs> Yeah, the Merriam-Webster or, you know, that's right. so, yes. anyway. but I that's, do think that is one of the issues that keeps coming up is the thing about pronunciation. And, yeah, I, I think we must somehow solve the problem of pronunciation is not a part of the UEB rules to any great extent. And yet you have so many readers who almost consider braille, braille contractions as phonemes. So for example, the SH sign always says sh, the TH sign always says th, and so on and so forth. Um, it's not always the case. And it, yeah, I mean, I don't think we'll even solve the problem FM of um, beret stroke beret with a dictionary. Um, that's an even worse one than Beethoven. And I think actually it's not it's not so much the aspirated H, it's the word construction from the original language. Right. Kathy, we have two raised hands there. Do you want to take them? Yes, yes. Okay, we have Ross first. Ross, can you unmute yourself there? Yes. Hello, everybody. It's Ross Devent from Australia. This is my first time attending. Good morning. This, uh... Hi, Kathy. Good morning, Ross. <laughs> um, it, it's been, I've been really enjoying the last few days um, listening to the content. And uh, I guess this is a comment that I would, I thought I, I've been thinking about, um, and it's to, to everybody in the ICEB. Uh, uh, this is my first time, so. Um, but it seems that a lot of these issues and, and, uh, and another um, example came up just before when you're talking about, um, you know, there's a, a problem with word, you know, word um, having, I can't remember what it was, having something switched off. Um, I can't remember what that was about, but um, is... 
a lot of these issues are so not just um, in to do with um, English speaking countries or English speakers, but are ubiquitous across the world, especially for transcribers, etc. Is the ICEB um, how with the, like with the Dutch language stuff before? How is the ICEB managing that um, kind of ubiquitous issues that that happens across languages across every you know and and stems into education um, within developing countries and so think so forth. So I think that there's a lot of um, overlap that the ICEB could be taking and in a more concerted effort um, in terms of. Um, you know, getting Braille ubiquitous, not just um, in English speaking, but, um, um, you know, across different languages and across the whole world. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anyone who, who could answer that better than I? This is Jen from Canada. I just, one comment. Um, definitely agree that a lot of the some of the issues that we talk about do overlap in other languages but we also have to bear in mind that we are the International Council on English Braille and so we have to be careful that we don't get too far out of scope because we have to make sure that we have the resources to deal with um, things that are actually a part of our mandate. Yeah. I do know that and I can't I can't remember where, where I've seen it written uh, one of the reports somewhere that um, a number of other Braille jurisdictions are looking at UEB, the structure of 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 UEB, how how we structure our symbols, how as to looking forward to their code development. So so it so the structure of of how UEB is. It is being looked at by by other countries, other languages, but it is, and and certainly, um, of of the UEB members, we've got South Africa, which has, I'm not sure of the exact number, but they have a number of official languages that they've got a unified mm. Braille code as opposed to a unified English Braille code, because they've got to cover a number of different languages, and so it is actually. Yeah being used across languages there. Um, Canada has French and English as as official languages, so they've got to look across two languages, you know, sort of within Canada, <laughs> which which doesn't necessarily, you know, sort of so, you know, it is being looked at, but, but ICEB doesn't have a role to dictate to other um, other countries no. and jurisdictions as, as to that, but certainly... Other some other countries are looking to ICEB to get to get ideas of how to structure their braille code. Yeah, and I suppose that I, I guess like I wasn't saying that ICEB should be dictating to other organisations in other languages, but having that kind of collaboration, especially with transcribers and you know that kind of issues to it, make make it yeah. make braille. braille in all, all forms. Um, uh, Margaret Bradshaw from the UK. Can I just uh, mention that uh, 
in amongst the papers for this conference was one by Joe, Joe Sullivan addressing adapting UEB for other languages. That's probably the one you were ah, thinking that's of. What that, that's what I was thinking of. Thank you, Margaret. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, I did. I did. Yeah. Anyway. Yes. I see we have one more raised hand, if I... Yes, please. Thanks, Ilka. Muting. Okay. I presume you can now hear me again. Yes, we can. But this is wonderful. One of the things that really... One of the many things that really riles me about UEB is that you were very willing to take contractions away from us, but you didn't give us any back. Will you consider doing so? Um, I think that that is not currently on the agenda. However, it could go on, on the agenda and the process of that is to approach your Braille authority and then a Braille authority, because when we look at things, it comes from the local, Bra you know, sort of the Braille authority of, of, mem of uh, member countries. So if... If you have have you know, sort of their, their discussions to be had at the local level, and then the local level then decides whether to bring it to the greater the greater level. So, and I take your point that that some contractions were were removed, and e each of those removed were for a very good reason. It doesn't make yes you know, so yes it it slows up reading for somebody who's who's a long time braille reader. Working in, in the education sector, I now, you know, sort of, we've got students who have never seen anything but UEB. That is the only code that they have seen. And they come and and they say, oh, they'll, they'll come across something which, which was prior UEB and they'll say, oh, what's this number sign in the middle of something? And it's yeah you know, the BLE contraction because they they always read dots three what is it three four five six as as the numeric indicator not as the BLE contraction and it doesn't you know sort of they're not phased by reading the letters BLE so some of it is um, I I understand your frustration can, can I, I just tell, can I may I just tell you something yes if you'd had your meeting in May. This would have been very symbolic to me. I, I would have loved to have been with you, incidentally. But had on the opening day, I would have had an acquaintance with Braille for 70 years and four days. I found it a... Fantastic. I, I found the whole thing awful. And I love Braille, and I'm distraught that it has been mutilated in the way that it has. I understand your points of view, but it seems to me that it's all fur coat and no knickers because, you know, it's just it's just fancy stuff. It we need we need we need to save space, not to add to it. Profound pause here. Matthew Horsfall, yeah. United Kingdom. We've got 
Yes, go Somebody's ahead. Sorry, I, I'm I'm technically an I'm technically an observer, so I thought I'd better um, uh, ask for permission first. I just wanted to cite Is that there are some echo? circumstances. We've, sorry, we've got uh, echo. Oh dear, let me let me sort that out and come back. I think you're you you're two people. So are you, Kathy? Do you want to try again, Matthew? Hello. Can we try that again? Ah, yes. Now it's fine. Sorry, I'm on two devices, one of which is for the stream, and I think I unmuted the wrong device. <laughs> um, sorry about that. I just wanted to um, to cite that there are some cases uh, in which the, the, the saving of space uh, has been achieved because, for example, if we talk about to be, uh, if we used the to sign, it would have been to be, which would have been three cells. Um, we haven't actually lost as much space as it seems because to space b is only four cells and there are there are a lot of examples like that where actually the space saving when you actually look at it is is not as dire as perhaps you would think all caps to to, to, to add to that um matthew um i have it on good authority that the uh the space difference between SEB and UEB, that's the previous British code and the Unified English Braille code. The space difference on ordinary text, note the qualification ordinary text, is about 1.8% increase, which is probably not worth worrying about. Now, add to that the effect of adding capitals, which is a particularly British problem. Um, then that space goes up to more like five percent so yeah. the the issue of capitals is not to do with ueb it is a separate issue but for many in britain it the two have coincided now i absolutely acknowledge that i said ordinary text now if you start adding in for example specific signs and technical material then the space differential does go up um, but uh, the, the, the problem you have is there are not enough single cell signs for all the things we now have to show. And therefore, some things had to go into double cell signs. Geordie from Australia. Yes, Geordie. I was just wanting to say to Mike, I fully understand where you're coming from, really missing those contractions of BLE and to and com. I know, though, that we did have to sacrifice some things when we moved to automated translation. Um, so change is, is hard to accept, and I know that I personally struggled with that for a long time. But now that Australia has implemented UEB for 10 years, although I still love those old contractions. And you know what? In a Braille sense, BRF file, I can write whatever I like, <laughs> even if it's a, an, an even more highly contracted code, which I may or may not do. Um, I still use UEB for a lot of my work, particularly when transferring from my Braille note taker to my Word files, agendas for this conference, and everything can forward and back translate fairly seamlessly. And that's, I think, 
a really welcome change because Braille can be implemented into more note takers and screen readers. And although, like you, I was uh, fairly passionate about our old Braille code, and I still am, um, you know, for my own stuff, I recognised that I, I needed to embrace change too. So I just wanted to say that, you know, as someone who hasn't used Braille for 70 years but maybe for about 36, <laughs> I uh, I echo what you're saying and I, I know some of our the younger generations do too and we, we respect where Braille's come from and, and won't forget where it's come from. So, yeah. Jen Golden, Canada. Yep, go ahead, Jen. Go ahead, thanks. Um, I, I agree, Jordi, uh, with what you're saying. And I guess part of my perspective too is that there's sort of two things that, yes, the con contractions have gone away, but there's a bigger picture to consider than my personal reading experience. So there's that aspect of it. There's also the aspect that I think a lot of times we as Braille readers forget that in 70 years, print has changed significantly, probably far more than Braille has. And so, you know, I think mm -hmm. while I I hear what you're saying as well, there's there are sort of a couple things that we've, the code has been, you know, not to say that we're not maintaining it and adding things as necessary, but these decisions have already been made for the sake of software and the other the other issues that have been um, explained. But when it comes down to it, I'm a Braille reader. This is what I use to read regardless of what it is I'm reading. So yeah, I might, I might not like that a contraction's gone away or maybe I wish a different, a symbol was done differently, but I'm not, I'm not going to let that get in the way of my enjoyment, appreciation and use of Braille. Five minutes. Thanks, Judy. So they've been really good comments. So to summarise where we... Right. I was just reading reading something I wrote. Um, to summarise where... where the code maintenance committee is going to go from here. As I said, I will in the next week or so call a uh, meeting of of the members of the code maintenance committee. I will probably use a similar time zone uh, to what we've been using for uh, the general assembly because because we're all now used to that sort of time zone. I'm, I might be going. Uh, an hour later, just so I don't have to get up at half past at five o'clock in the morning. They can start at five at six thirty for me rather than five thirty. But um, and then we can, as 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 a smaller group, discuss where where we want to go. As highlight, highlighting our our priorities, looking at what can be achieved in a quick in a short space of time. What needs to have a longer a longer lead up to discussion what is important what is not so important so um, that's where we go from here and tomorrow we will look at um, specifically look at the guidelines for te technical material which is a whole different ball game 
Thank you very much, Kathy. That was a tremendous discussion. Gosh, I wish we had days and days to talk about the ins and outs of, of Braille. But tomorrow is day four. So we do have at least a couple more days to keep talking about this. And on day four, we will be discussing eight papers on various aspects of learning Braille and Braille literacy. We will also hold elections for officers who will serve for the next four years. And we will have an additional opportunity to talk about UEB code maintenance technical materials. Okay. Thank you very much, everyone. Have a wonderful evening. And we will see you at 1900 UTC tomorrow. Thank you very much to all of you and keep well. Hear you all tomorrow again. Thank you, Judy. Good night, everyone. Thanks, Judy. Thank you, everybody. Good Good to hear you, everyone. everybody. Goodbye. Thanks, all. Good See you tomorrow. And there you go. You're listening to live coverage of the 7th General Assembly of the International Council on English Braille. The time, would you believe it, we finished two minutes early. The time is uh, now one minute to 11, but we finished at two minutes to 11, I think. Uh, or, or just about. Uh, the Zoom meeting has just finished, uh, so I'll just wait for a window to disappear from my screen. There we go. And then we can uh, get into discussion about what happened. And uh, as ever, joining me, Holly Scott Gardner. So Holly, uh, let's uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's sort of try and digest some of what happened. A very slow discussion uh, to start with, but it picked up quite well in the end, I think, didn't it? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, there was definitely areas that had more discussion. The index got some discussion about how that would work of the rules, um, you know, and whether it should be based on print page numbers or sections. And then, of course, that discussion at the end about the value of UEB and um, the discomfort that perhaps some I want to say older readers. I, I actually don't know if it's just older readers, but that's certainly my perception. But you are more in the the Braille scene than I am. <laughs> it's, it's certainly a view that's held uh, commonly. Uh, certainly it was Mike Howell that brought up that point. And Mike is certainly not the only person to have uh, raised that concern. Uh, certainly in UCAF, when we first introduced UEB, there was a lot of discomfort uh, amongst blind people. There was a feeling, you know, when, when you talk to a lot of blind people about UEB the, in the UK, the first thing they say is, oh, yeah, but I wasn't consulted about it. And um, were they consulted about it? I mean, they probably weren't consulted about it. The reality is it's really difficult to actually get hold of uh, every blind person in the country. There was a consultation exercise whether it was ro as robust as it could be, we don't know. Um, and so, of course, that then leaves blind people feeling very disillusioned and uh, sort of feeling like they want to have a view. So certainly within UCAF, we get comments like that quite a lot um, from a, a wide range of people, actually. Uh, we had someone in a university once who really wanted to get SEB, even though UEB was the standard by then. So I don't think it's just older people, although there is a there is a trend towards that. And, and also, you know, people who are concerned about having to learn two different codes. And so the argument when we first went into UEB was, well, what about all the old books? So I think, right. um, I think it was good that 
observers were allowed to comment. Um, I think... I actually think it was good that the Observer was allowed to make that comment, and I think it it was a credit to ICEB that the comment was acknowledged and dealt with and well justified, yes. I think, by uh, the various people, you know, some of whom are on the ICEB executive and people from different countries. And, uh, you know, we, we had Geordie from Australia, we had uh, Jen from Canada, both Braille readers, uh, both really able to sympathise uh, <clears throat> with Mike's position. And I think that's important mm. because I think it demonstrates on a fundamental level that if somebody comes to ICEB with a concern, with a criticism, they might not get the answer that they want in terms of, of course, we're not going to go back to SEB. Uh, so I, I, I'm you know, sorry about that. But I yeah, think it's good course. to have demonstrated in that session that ICEB will listen, ICEB will give uh, constructive feedback uh will will be able to rationalize i think it was good to be able to say actually yes we did go to ueb yes we know what the problems are but look here's all the advantages and i thought it was very well justified by everybody that that came in so yeah yeah go Um, ahead i have i have a few thoughts on on various things that you've said so firstly Oh, well, firstly, I'm going to apologise because someone's setting off fireworks. So if you can hear that, I'm really I actually sorry. can't hear them, no so that's good. Is, but... Oh, well, that that's good, but just in case. Um, my, my first thought was, whilst not every blind person will have been um, consulted, actually, should every blind person be consulted? Because print symbols change. Print has evolved over years and years, and actually not every sighted person is consulted. And that isn't to say there shouldn't be consultation within the blind community. Of course, if you designed a completely ineffectual system, that would be ridiculous. But actually, I think sometimes the blind community needs to remember that things change, and actually we don't all deserve um, our views to be considered the most important, particularly when we don't hold expertise in a certain area. I think it's very easy to criticise, but actually if someone had asked me to develop UEB, I wouldn't have done a particularly good job because this isn't where my expertise lies. And so I do think there's an element of that actually that perhaps the community needs to recognise that whilst it would be great if every blind person could be consulted on every single change, to blindness systems, whether that be braille or new pieces of technology. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen with any community. There will always be focus groups, always um, representative groups, but never the whole community. And I think sometimes people miss that. Um, But then moving on to your second point about how ICB handled it, I I agree with you. I think it was... um, wise to let the comment be said and to acknowledge it and to treat it with the respect that it deserved because whilst I think the comment was somewhat misguided as you say it is a view which is held by many blind people and actually blind people need to know that ICEB is listening to us even if ICEB ultimately takes a different viewpoint but that they can justify that viewpoint it's not just what we wanted to do it so we did it's there are actually good reasons for it and I think James made a good point about print having evolved and you know we need to keep up with that and you know he said that that Braille has to um, cope with much more than it used to and that's very true that's absolutely true and there are things you can do with UEB that you cannot do with SEB or couldn't have done as well 
And I was actually someone who in the beginning was hesitant regarding UEB, which I don't really talk about now because I think I was wrong. <laughs> so I tried to pretend it never happened, but um, I was nervous about learning a new mathematical code. And I still don't really know UEB mathematics. And I was nervous because I was, well, going through school and I just thought, oh no. But when it comes to actually, sometimes you need to look at, maybe I do have to learn something else, but in the end, is it better once I know it? Do I have more opportunities? And I also thought, you know, good points were made about what you write on your Braille sense in a BRF file. That's your business. You know, as individuals, if you're doing some slating, you can slate what you want. Yeah, absolutely. I think the only thing that where I would slightly diverge from you there is that print has evolved Mm -hmm. and certainly not everybody in the sighted world was consulted about the evolution of print, right? But I think the evolution of print happens a lot more naturally than the evolution of Braille. So print, you know, people Mm -hmm. started using emojis in print. Nobody sort of made a decree that said these characters now exist and you must use them. Somebody discovered them and used them and then their friends started using them and then their friends started using them and then people started using them in slightly different ways and and now here we are. And that would have been the same with any form of language evolution. Uh, you know, on a on a lesser scale, talking about hyphenating. You know, mm. email used to have a capital E and then a hyphen and then mail. And slowly, just through usage, you know, somebody as a shorthand, I suppose, would have written email, E-M-A-I-L, yeah. all lowercase. And somebody else then as a shorthand copied that and then it became longhand and now it's fairly standard for email... Um, to have this this way of writing email and phone doesn't have an apostrophe anymore and uh, th- I mean this is evolution of language but I think evolution of symbols as well somebody at some point had to come up with the at sign but um, did sighted people necessarily have to use it if they didn't want to um, and, and so it, it all sort of just happens very naturally and I feel like what happened with braille for better or for worse and I happen to think it's for better but what happened with braille was we realized over time that it needed to evolve and so we evolved it but that evolution is a lot more black and white i would say than the very slow and steady evolution of print and perhaps that's why it's more unsettling for blind people than it is for sighted people i think that's definitely part of it absolutely um as you said um, when print evolves it tends to be very gradual but I mean when new emojis are created often it's by bigger companies and okay there is an element of anyone can create anything and it can end up getting adopted into um, visual communication for sure but I mean in terms of the at sign if if a sighted person wanted to use a different sign they're still constrained by what's available on their keyboards so I do think there's an element of even sighted people are forced into certain um, using certain symbols. But you're right, it is very much in Braille. I think it all feels a lot smaller because the community's smaller because it happens on committees like at ICB, and we get suddenly told, okay, there's a new rule book. This is what's happening, and I think a lot of blind people um, feel it as a shock to the system. But I also think people miss the fact that actually there is ways of there are ways of getting our voices heard. I mean, there's all the mailing lists, and I'm sure most people within ICB welcome 
um, constructive feedback from the community and discussions and questions and UEB is evolving all the time based on questions that get asked when you guys don't have the answers I mean it, it changes because the community asks questions yeah and I think possibly another element to this is the the disenfranchisement of blind people generally and I don't know that that's necessarily as true mm -hmm. in other parts of the world you know America has NFB and ACB two very big consumer advocacy groups and they will fight mm. uh, on braille just as hard as they will fight on anything else if they feel like they need to if the membership at large felt it needed to in the UK we don't really have that on the same scale so people don't feel empowered to talk to their blind their, their braille authority which would be UCAF in the UK's case possibly because actually they don't feel empowered to talk to um to R and I B, and there's some conflation between in the minds of, of blind people. Like they sort of think that UEB's R and I B's problem, uh, because R and I B is the biggest braille mm -hmm. producer, and so you end up with this mindset where people say, "Well, R and I B have, have messed me about. They keep messing me about. They're not going to stop messing me about. And now, on top of everything else, they've gone and ruined my perfectly good braille. So it's almost like the straw that broke the camel's back, possibly." <laughs> I think you're very right and it's very unfortunate because as with any country the UK has a long and varied and quite interesting blindness history and we can't possibly go into all of it tonight but there is very much a sense of that we do not have a consumer advocacy organization even when the RNIB has set up panels and things it's very much been under the umbrella of the cited led RNIB or I think that's been the perception and that's not a criticism of the RNIB I'm just saying that when an existing blindness organisation which does have a significant sighted presence or perceived to be sighted presence or even you know blind people are perceived to be RNIB blind people versus blind people so it's very much seen as well the RNIB are setting up this group but they could also do away with it so they could get rid of our voice if they chose to because it's RNIB's panel so I definitely do think that's a wider problem actually that's not necessarily the RNIB's problem because there's an, another argument that actually will Blind people need to organise themselves and do something about this. But that's a complex and um, political problem that isn't going to be solved overnight. And I, I think your point about the UK having a different philosophy or feeling within the community to other countries. I mean, as you know, I spent a year in the United States very much in a federation environment and yes things are different since coming back here um there is very much the sense that where are the blind people meeting where are the blind people making decisions and i actually don't blame the rnib but i think a lot of people um equate our lack of a voice with them because they see them as a big organization unfortunately and that's not as you say you know it's not um, UEB wasn't decided unilaterally by the RNIB. Moving the conversation on slightly um, and still sticking with the theme <laughs> of consultation. Yeah, sorry, that was very abrupt, wasn't it? But, you it's know, political. it's it, yes, quite. <laughs> but uh, I, I think it, it's it's probably worth moving it on, on slightly um, to, to just mm. talk more generally about 
participation on listservs. And I think it was encouraging that that point was made, was that observers don't have to just observe. Observers can uh, raise opinions if they want to. And, um, of course, the route to becoming an observer would be to go through the Braille Authority, and different Braille authorities have different uh, strategies and, and, and structures for appointing observers. Uh, I am an observer on the Code Maintenance Committee, and uh, I think coming out of that meeting, I, I perhaps feel like I should uh, make more of an effort to contribute as an observer. Uh, but I think it was good to have that on the table and and to be very upfront about saying, look, talk to us and tell us when we've gone wrong, because that's the only way in which we're going to make this code robust. Yeah, I think it's really important. I think it was really, really positive. I actually really um, felt for everyone on the committee when the question was raised, not that it wasn't a valid question, not that it, it I absolutely don't think the question should have been silenced. I'm, you know, very much, I believe that it was handled correctly in that the question was heard and respected but I, I do think it's can't be an easy job to create a unified English Braille code that works really well so it must be difficult sometimes to get these questions I think you've probably got to have a thick skin to deal with it but I do think it was a really really good point to make that actually this isn't just people deciding what's good for us you know that actually we do have a voice and we are welcome to contribute when we have things to contribute and I mean I think that's evidenced by the number of blind people involved in ICB and this isn't to discredit the work of the sighted people in ICB because they are doing an amazing job but there are many blind people in ICB so it's not that we're shut out Braille emojis uh, again, to to move the <laughs> conversation on slightly, um, you don't want me to get really political. <laughs> I, I don't. Well, <laughs> it's not really that I don't want you to get really political. <laughs> I just think there's a, there's, no. there's a risk of uh, of getting off topic very quickly if we end up getting political. Oh, and, I'm and... not being controversial. I'm actually being <laughs> very nice. <laughs> But we've had we've had lots and lots of conversations on and offline about Braille and uh, what Braille should look like. And emojis is something that actually came up on Twitter long before the General Assembly. And it's something that's sort of been in the back of my mind for a long time before the General Assembly. And um, I thought it was very encouraging to read in Jennifer Dunham's paper that voiceover is now displaying the emoji names in transcriber defined transcriber note uh, indicators that's great that's a bit long do you not think i think it is long but i also think um there's an awful lot of emojis an awful lot and it's not going to be an easy task to figure out a way to condense them so i oh i don't envy anyone the task of that I mean that's just so difficult it's it's a lot so I mean it's not ideal because some of the names are incredibly long but I also don't know at the moment what could be better but I'm sure you have some ideas I do have some ideas <laughs> and I was really really happy when Phyllis uh, not Phyllis when Kathy uh, said that that was going to be noted and you know that it was it was really good to hear that the CMC might very well take that up at some point down the line. Because I think the danger is that if the CMC doesn't take it up, then 
you end up in a situation where already Apple has decided what it's going to do to solve the problem. NVDA has decided what it's going to do to solve the problem. It just dumps the Unicode numbers out. <laughs> JAWS has decided that it's going to solve the problem by just putting a couple of four signs on the display. And all this before uh, talking about back translation. How on earth do you do, do you do an emoji in Braille screen input? And as emojis become more prevalent, I mean, you know, sometimes the answer to a text message now is an emoji, you know, how are you? And the response is just a smiley face or a sad face or uh, where are you? And the response is just the bus emoji. Mm -hmm. And I feel like for blind people to be able to keep up with the sighted world, we need to be able to input that quickly. And if our primary means of input is Braille, then the Braille code needs to be able to input emojis and needs to be able to input them efficiently oh absolutely i think that's really really important um i will 100 percent say i don't have the answer to how but I, I agree with you i mean that's one of the biggest frustrations is that you just can't write these emojis actually and sometimes it's really inconvenient where i'm like oh do i want to actually switch out braille screen input to go and find an emoji but you, you're also right about all the companies deciding on different ways to do this. I, I think it's going to be a difficult job, but I think if the Code Maintenance Committee cracks it, then that will be actually incredible. And I think it just shows how robust UEB can be moving into a world that is more and more technical and based more and more online by the day. Yeah, and I would really advise... Uh, did, did somebody mention the reader rules? It was a very, very brief mention of the reader rules that was mentioned somewhere in all of this discussion. But the reader rules really are a fascinating read, and they demonstrate just how robust UEB is. Um, we, we don't necessarily have the answers for how to start making emojis uh, as such. You know, we, we don't have an answer for what symbols we're going to use and how we're going to use them and, and all of this. What we do have are very clear guidance from the original UEB committees before it became the Code Maintenance Committee. We have extremely clear guidance about what is a symbol, what is a root, um, you know, how to define new... Uh, sorry, what is a prefix and what is a root and, and how to define new symbols based on that. So we know, for example, that dots four, five, six cannot ever be used as a uh, as a root on its own because four, five, six is is a prefix. So this is how you get, for example, four, five, six M for many. M is the root character and four, five, six is the prefix character. And the whole of UEB is built on that prefix root concept. And there was a very, very clear framework for how that prefix root concept should work. And that therefore gives us a framework in which rather than just sort of looking into empty space and going, well, how could we possibly define this symbol? Where do we even start? <laughs> well, at least we know that we've got to start with the prefixes. And that's uh, not a particularly helpful starting point, but it's a much more helpful starting point than we had prior to UEB. And it will, in the end, give us some really robust symbols and if somebody wants to they could get really really creative with this in terms of the, the number of emojis is practically infinite but they are constructed in quite specific ways if you really get into the technical the technical side of emojis which i don't want to do too much on this analysis but for example um you have the uh you, you have the person emojis right you have the person with a white cane 
or the or even the clapping hands emoji, right? right. Let's take the clapping hands emoji because it's simpler. You have the clapping hands emoji and separately you can specify the skin color so you can have white clapping hands or you know at varying degrees of, of skin color clapping hands and the skin color is defined separately to the emoji itself even though you don't see it that way you know when you browse you you see the different colors but um or tones as they're called but it would be possible to uh look at the breakdown of how these emojis are constructed behind the scenes you know look at the technical way in which they're constructed so you wouldn't have to have a braille sign for white clapping hands what you'd have is a braille sign for clapping hands and then a secondary braille sign for white and then that prefix root concept which it's, it's not quite prefix root but that concept can then be applied to all of the other emojis that need to have a white skin tone and so there's some really uh, innovative stuff that that could be done in this space and i'm really looking forward to seeing what comes of this uh now that the code maintenance committee has right, acknowledged yeah. it, it doesn't have a charge yet but it's it's acknowledged that it needs to be dealt with and uh therefore it hopefully will be dealt with and possibly there's a second code maintenance committee session uh, tomorrow it's a lot shorter than this one so possibly there won't be time to discuss it then but that second session is to do with technical material and so it would be the ideal time to bring up emojis if we wanted to bring them up yeah i think it's really interesting and actually um one thing you say about whether skin tone is separate you do see that on certainly on windows when you use the windows emoji picker i've noticed it where it will show the emoji if you if you arrow left and right like when you insert the emoji um with a screen reader you actually hear what it is and then the skin tone so that is shown when you're using a screen reader that element of the fact that it's two separate things so you're absolutely right you would only need to set one one set of of skin tones with braille to then be applied across emojis which I mean, at least that's something, right? <laughs> yeah, it really is. And it, it, again, it's a starting point that we can really start to work with and, and hopefully create some mm-hmm. really exciting emojis in the next edition of the rulebook. Was there anything else that came out of today? I think we've we've pretty much covered it all, but I'll, I'll open it up just in case there was anything else that stuck out to you that I haven't mentioned. Um, I think overall just the, the feeling of, of the evening, I felt that it, everyone was really engaged, that people had a lot of questions. You know, a lot a lot went on this evening from the technology to the code maintenance committee, but actually I, I really felt like positive things are happening and I felt like that so far, but today I think everyone was very chatty, which was nice. Um, I really felt like I was at... A conference you know where people are getting engaged and that was nice to see and actually I came away from this just on a personal level feeling really enthusiastic about braille and my enthusiasm for braille has been just growing and growing and growing which is funny I mean I've always read braille but um, certainly recently I just use it constantly and it was actually really nice to come away from this just feeling even more enthused I guess to to carry on yeah, absolutely. And I think people are now starting to get the hang of Zoom. Um, there was a lot of nervousness when we first started mm-hmm. on the Sunday about, you know, how is this going to work? And, you know, delegates can unmute themselves and observers can't, but delegates 
don't really want to unmute because they don't want to talk over somebody else and you know how do we do this and and all of that sort of stuff has started to be tested now and so I feel like people were really comfortable today people came in they knew what to expect they knew what the etiquette was they knew how to behave and therefore there was a lot more appetite I felt from within the meeting to actually start talking and to engage in the debate that was going on Right, I definitely felt like that too. It was it was a lot of fun to observe for sure. I mean, oh, I sorry, one more thing when you asked if there was anything that I came away from the meeting with. Well, again, more of a general point about myself. I think I felt really enthusiastic about actually the work that's going on in the UK. I know we touched on this earlier, so I won't get too much into it, but actually I really felt like there's good stuff going on in the UK and it made, it made me feel really happy and enthusiastic, like in, in a positive way about everyone just all this braille knowledge, I mean, across the world, but to know that there's so much of it in the UK, and I mean, I've always known it, but to really feel it, I think is is a really nice feeling. Yeah, and it's an opportunity to meet the people who actually make this stuff happen. Uh, I've worked as a transcriber for about mm -hmm. six years now. I'm a, a blind person working as a transcriber. And um, it was my first job out of university. I didn't expect to be a transcriber. I just ended up as a transcriber. And I've, I've loved being a transcriber. I don't want to do anything else now. I, I think it's, it's a fantastic job and I really enjoy it. Um, and I particularly enjoy all the difficult stuff that, that people sort of groan at. You know, when you've got tables that you need to split across multiple pages or split into multiple tables because they're too <laughs> wide, you know, that to me is a real uh, art form. I'm also a musician and I, I feel like um, I don't have an awful lot to do with the arts other than music, but I feel like sorting out all these tables and reflowing data and making things work, you know, actually getting a document that's in three columns that doesn't read properly and getting that document to a point where it reads properly and, and and editing it so that it all makes sense to me that's like that's the equivalent i guess of you know painting a picture and like it, it's a real art form and i i feel like that's an that's probably the best way aside from music in which i express my artistic tendencies but i remember when i first started transcribing feeling quite lonely i was in a very small setup i was the only transcriber my line manager was a teacher and a fairly knowledgeable teacher as it goes but there's an enormous difference between teaching and transcribing and so there'd be questions that I would ask and not really get a very clear answer to and I'd sort of just need to go it on my own and I remember the first time I attended a UK braille conference the, the UCAF conference just being so happy that I got the opportunity to sit in a pub and nerd out about Braille. Um, that's that's how I put it when I got back <laughs> from that conference, you know, and, and I could sit and I could talk about how difficult it was to get these tables done and, and how amazing it was when it was done. I can I could talk about how frustrating it was that that sighted people don't mark up their documents properly. And I could do that. And it was amazing. And I got to know people who actually knew about this stuff. And now that I'm in the industry, of course, I know people. I, you know, there's all sorts of people who I can go to and ask. But I feel like it's um, 
a bit of a closed shop. You kind of have to be in the industry and then you get to know other people who are in the industry and then they introduce you to their friend who introduces you to their friend who introduces you to their friend who says, actually, um, between you, me and the gatepost, I kind of have a voting stake on the code maintenance committee. So perhaps we should talk about this. And so I think it was really good this evening to actually see all of these people come together and to get a real feel for who are the movers and shakers in the countries? Who is it that's making these decisions at a national level and then feeding them back into an international level? From a UK observer point of view, perhaps, if I have a question about Braille, right. now I know who in the UK I actually need to go to rather than just emailing the RNIB helpline and being bounced around from department to department or, or however it goes. You know, People actually know that there is a human somewhere and, and they know how to reach that human. And I feel like that's really actually quite important. <laughs> I think it absolutely is. I mean, in one thing, I was born blind. I've been a Braille reader since I was two, which is very early to be a, a Braille reader. But I mean, I've always benefited from RNIB Braille. I mean, and I've sort of known that my whole life. But I wouldn't have necessarily thought all that much about it beyond oh the RNIB gives me braille and that's great thank you RNIB but actually when you start to meet the people you realize actually people are working really hard and it isn't just thank you RNIB it's like there are some fascinating decisions that are being made and you know not that necessarily the RNIB is making all the decisions but there's lots of people working at the RNIB who have amazing knowledge of braille and I think sometimes we can get a bit bogged down in feeling just in life in general not just about blindness but about okay here's all the things that are frustrating me but actually like we're so lucky to live somewhere where we have access to really high quality braille and so much knowledge and that has really um been something i've taken from this and also as as a researcher to connect with so many people who are doing fascinating research into braille and I have a document which is just called Research Ideas where I just write down everything I ever have wanted to research and there's been so much that has come out of this but also it's not just ideas but also oh maybe I'll email someone or you know I'll now I, I know that they're at this conference maybe I'll see oh maybe I can follow them on Twitter or something to find out more about their research in future and that as well is very very exciting for me. Yeah, that's really good to hear. I'm not a researcher, but I love giving people research ideas. <laughs> I think I've probably given you a fair old amount of research <laughs> ideas in my time. But uh, yeah, yeah. No, research is, is something that's very important. And it's really good to see that that's there. We had about 80 people in Zoom today, just to give people on the stream some idea of, of how many people we had. So that's probably about what... Um, if there's four delegates from seven countries, that's 28, plus a, a handful of admin people. Um, and probably about 50 observers. So that's really, really encouraging to see that level of uptake. There were about 80 yesterday as well. So hopefully we'll get about the same number tomorrow and 60 on the Sunday. Um, so I feel like there's there's perhaps some interest in the papers and also possibly the, the conference is being uh, advertised very well. And as you say, people are tweeting about it and people are really getting into it, aren't they? Mm. Oh yeah, what's really cool on Twitter actually is that um, 
I've had people tweet me because I've been, I've been posting about it going, oh yeah, I'm waking up in Australia at six to join or people from other countries who are, who are going, oh, this looks interesting. And actually someone who follows me who's not a blind person, they're a sighted person working in um, computer science. And they said to me, oh, this this really interests me. I'm kind of busy right now, but will, will it be archived? So I directed them to the podcast feed. So actually people who maybe want to dip into different sessions who don't necessarily, um, who aren't necessarily braille readers or who work with blind people but have an interest in accessible design and because you know so much of the discussion is around electronic braille this has an impact on on sighted people who are not necessarily um, working in the field but want to make their content accessible. And wasn't it really great to see people from non-ICEB countries? We had somebody from Samoa yesterday. We had somebody from the Dutch Braille Authority in today. And that, to me, is is really exciting. And one of the advantages of having a virtual conference is that more people can join from non-ICEB countries and see how we do things and we can learn from them and they can learn from us. I think it's really, really cool. It makes it so much more accessible, not in terms of disability, but just in terms of actually anyone being able to join. It's it's really amazing to see. I mean, even someone like myself from the UK, I would have never attended this kind of thing before. So it, it's, and it's just made me so enthusiastic. Like I've come away from today feeling like I, I'm ready now to learn all the UEB maths that I'm going to need for my master's degree. <laughs> I have the energy. And that, in and of itself, is a fabulous outcome. Uh, and hopefully there are lots more observers who yeah. listened in and observed um, who kind of feel the same way. So I'm going to wrap things up. I hope up. so. It would be nice. Yeah. I'm going to wrap things up here. It's 11.34pm in the UK, and uh, I need to get these archives sorted out and go to bed and be ready to <laughs> start all this off again about the same time tomorrow. <laughs> Just looking ahead, um, there was a, an announcement at the start of today about the Constitution, which was very short. You'll remember there was this huge uh, Constitution debate yesterday, uh, and there was a motion. Uh, well, there wasn't a motion, but there was a decision taken that we were going to discuss that on Thursday. Um, that has been adjusted slightly, and an announcement was made at the start that the Executive Committee have agreed to take it forward, and therefore the Executive Committee... Um, suggested that the executive committee should just take it forward and that the that there should be no further discussion at the general assembly and uh, that didn't reach with any opposition so that appears to be the way that we're going now that the constitution uh, will not be on the table again uh, during this general assembly and the executive will be in touch in due course but there are other bits of business still on the agenda that need to be done including in fact the election of the executive. So tomorrow we have the second report of the nominations committee. I suppose technically it's the third report of the nominations committee because the second one was on Monday, but we don't count that in the agenda for some reason. So the second report of the nominations committee, which is basically because there were no further nominations, we get uh, told that the, uh, uh, the, the slate uh, could be elected unopposed if delegates wanted to. So there might be a call for a vote uh, on the slate or there might be a call for a vote of each candidate one by one. I'm not entirely sure how that is going to happen, but that will be happening tomorrow. Um, interspersed with uh, a second code maintenance session uh, and two sets of papers, not just one, uh, two sets of papers. 
so there'll be four papers in the first half, uh, followed by the election, and then the code maintenance session, and then four more papers in the second half. And both of those papers have a focus on Braille, both of those sets of papers, so all eight in total, have a focus on Braille literacy and learning. So that is the theme of tomorrow. And tomorrow is the final thematic day in which we will hear the papers. Uh, we'll have finished all the papers by the end of today, uh, tomorrow. Um, I should just say there was mention made in the um, CMC discussion while we're talking about papers of a, a paper from Joe Sullivan. Uh, there's actually a few papers that never made it to the General Assembly because uh, the presenters were not able to attend the General Assembly. So there was a paper from Joe Sullivan which would have been presented in May, uh, but Joe was unable to be here this week. So this is why we're not hearing his paper. So we don't have a pre-recorded presentation of his paper. The paper was made available to the delegates in written form and should be available, I hope, on the ICEB website after the conference has finished. There was also a paper from South Africa about the challenges of Braille in South Africa for which we don't have a pre-recorded uh, presentation and a paper from Josie Howes in Australia about UEB online and we don't have a pre-record of, of that paper either so there won't be any questions taken on those papers uh that you're not missing anything on the podcast we just don't have uh, any of those papers in audio format but as i say in text format they will be made available with any luck on the iceb website at the end of the conference for people who do actually want to read those papers so at just before 20 to midnight here in the UK, I really am going to draw this to a close now. Thank you very much to everybody for listening. Don't forget the podcast at live.brailcast.com and you can also access uh, online versions of all of the archives and all of the papers from there. Stay tuned to the stream if you're listening live. We'll start broadcasting tomorrow's papers as soon as we drop off here. Uh, but for now, from myself, Matthew Horsepool and Holly Scott Gardner, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again tomorrow.